0: Or is it Swatha? Um, so surprise, it's Claire Stanley. <gasps> and- Claire! <laughs> all right. Oh, I hope um, I get to see you. I hope I get to see you this weekend. I will be at the rally on Friday, so I'm super excited to see everybody. All right. Well, I'm, I will be in for a hug, Claire. Um, <laughs> awesome. I look forward so, to it. All
1: right, my friend. It's all yours.
0: <laughs> Great. Um, so Swatha and I were supposed to run this together. But the uh, people in Virginia are momentarily, hopefully, um, preoccupied. So hopefully Swatha will jump back in. But until that happens, you guys get me. Um, so I'm going to be going over kind of what we often call hill etiquette, or kind of the do's and don'ts of what we do when we are interacting with um, staffers, congressional staffers, either virtually as many of us do now, or when we do it in person, um, which we hope more and more will be able to do. Um, and then we have two of our fine ACB members who will be doing some mock um, conversations with us so we can get some practice. So just to shout out, first I'll do some do's and don'ts. But in the meantime, do we have our two lovely participants with us, Jeff, Tom, and Becky Davidson? My, my iPad says I'm here. Hurrah! Awesome. <laughs> Great. Um, well, like I said, this is Claire. I'm going to start with some do's and don'ts, but Jeff and Becky, feel free to jump in as you, fee- as you see fit when I'm talking, and then we will do some mock, um, I wanted to call them interviews. They're not interviews. Sometimes when you're on the Hill, you feel like you're being interviewed, but some mock conversations that kind of demonstrate what it would look like to talk with the congressional staffer. Um, and then um, we can take some questions, some Q&A after that to um, answer any questions you guys might have about what it looks like, what to expect, those kinds of things. Um, Great, so I'm going to jump in. Um, Again, a lot of our Hill meetings these days are virtual just by virtue of COVID-19. And now a lot of offices, honestly, have just kind of gotten comfortable with it. Um, My office is literally a couple of um, blocks away from Capitol Hill. But because Congress has gotten so comfy with doing their meetings virtually, I still get, oh, let's just do it over Zoom. So um, a lot of you will probably do it that way. Hopefully a few of of you will be able to do it in person. Regardless, either way, you need to have these tricks and and skills and kind of know what's going on. Um, So what you should do when you get there. So first and foremost, regardless of in-person or um, virtual, you always want to make sure you introduce yourself, you know, say, hi, my name is Claire Stanley. Um, And the really important thing you can do is say where you're from, especially if you are um, actually a resident of the district of the member that you're talking to. Um, they love that I see all the time, you know, I say, mm. Oh, I went to college in your district or, Oh, my parents grew up in your district and they love that they eat it up. And I think it really makes them have a connection with you right away. So even if it's not you, maybe someone from your affiliate, um, the college you went to, whatever it is, you know, just making that connection. Um, cause I think that kind of helps break the ice and that kind of thing. So, and again, always introduce yourself, um, um, shake their hand, you know, again, if you're in person, obviously, if you're not in person, you can't, but shake their hand if you can. Um, make sure that you're dressed professionally. Um, you know, you want to represent yourself well. So come dressed, you know, you don't have to be in a full suit, so to speak, but just look nice. Um, If you are doing it via zoom, which again, the great majority of us probably are, um, turn your camera on. I know it's really, uh, I, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because right now I don't have my camera on. Um, But you know, again, most of the people we're meeting with are sighted, and it just makes us come off as professional. So if you can, if at all possible, turn your camera on, uh, make yourself look presentable. Uh, Becky and Jeff, do you guys want to add anything on that before I go on? Uh, no, I, go no.
2: Ahead.
0: no, I said I just said um no. Okay, great. Um, So know your topic, know what you're talking about. Now, granted, I will put the caveat that you're not always going to have an answer for everything. In fact, that's one of my next tricks I want or tips I wanted to bring up. But really know your topics. Don't go in completely without, you know, any idea what you're talking about just because they talk to a lot of people every day and they're very business, uh, very busy. And let me tell you, depending on the office, sometimes they're gonna wanna push you out that door as fast as they can. So really know your topics so you're there and you are ready to talk. Um, now granted, sometimes conversations can go off on a tangent and that's not necessarily, as a, necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you'll mention something and they'll say, ooh, another constituent said, or, oh, I'm really interested in that topic. So don't be afraid to go on a tangent if it happens. But again, these, these staffers are very busy. A lot of times they do wanna get you in and out. So be very succinct and on topic mm-hmm. and know what you're talking about. But again, don't, don't be so rigid that if it does take a turn and they're interested, then you can go with it. Um, but again, read the room, I often say, because if they're often very busy, they might kind of be quote unquote, staring at the door going, okay, hurry up. So try to read the room, and if they give you that time and latitude, by all means take it. But if they're trying to rush you out the door, don't be that person who's like, let me give this 20-minute monologue because they're going to be checked out, and obviously we don't want that to happen. Um, One way to kind of help push back against that is having literature, so that even if they do, heaven forbid, want to, you know, check out in just 10 minutes, we can leave them with literature, which I know Swatha has produced for you guys, so we have literature on all of our um, imperatives so that's a great thing to have and they really like that too because again they talk to so many people so even if they're most the most attentive listener uh, possible they still talk to a lot of people so having literature is really really helpful be responsible with your time again. Um, generally the the main time frame they schedule constituents for is for 30 minutes. Um, so even if you have the most attentive listener, 30 minutes goes by really fast but we have three or four imperatives. So just kind of do the math in your head once you do introductions and live, leave time for Q&A. That doesn't leave a ton of time so just be really responsible with your time. I have a comment
3: on literature if I... Yeah
0: please Yep.
3: Um, literature can be tricky because what you don't want is your staffer or even your congressperson, if you get one, to focus on the literature. So if you're asked ahead of time to provide literature, I recommend you send the one pager. Um, what you don't want is to have them with, you know, all four or five pages of imperatives in front of them. Looking at those things and sort of ignoring you because they are busy and you don't know how much uh, they're actually going to listen to you, and you don't want them to have any possibility of distracting themselves with a whole bunch of paper. So, send them that one pager if they want it, and then follow up at the end and say, I'm happy to send you more detailed literature on any of these topics. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thank you. You.
0: That, that's so. Go ahead, Becky. I
4: agree with that. Um, and when last year, when I was scheduling virtual appointments, I, when I once the, I got a confirmation of the appointment, I sent back the one pager with the, you know, thank you for um, giving us your time. And that way they had it ahead of time so that we could focus more on the why rather than the what. And, you know, maybe get into some some of the more personal aspects of our presentation as to why we, we feel that um, the bill is important.
0: Great, yeah, sometimes, and again, there's no hard and fast rule, but sometimes I personally don't even send them the literature till afterwards, for that very reason Jeff explained, mm-hmm. because sometimes cited people love to look down at the piece of paper they're reading, Um, But granted, on the flip side, I think some of them like it ahead of time because then they can circle things and scribble on the sheet. So, again, there's not a hard and fast rule. Sometimes they'll explicitly ask you for the literature before. Then, of course, you're going to be polite and send it before. But just be cognizant of all the different variables we were talking about.
4: And have a hard copy with you if you're there in person so you can pull it out of your backpack and hand it to them um, right then and there. Um, And, you know. Sometimes, yeah, they'll give you kind of a clue if they need it or not. You can kind of tell if they're if they're really listening to you and you can say, Well, I can give you some more information right now, but still just the one pager. I think that's basically what that's for. And then the more descriptive pieces can be sent later or emailed later. You know, that those are great too, but you don't need that much detail because you probably don't have that much time at the, at the initial appointment.
0: Perfect. Great. Um, So I'll move down the list and thank you, um, Jeff and Becky for weighing in. It's so great to have multiple um, perspectives. Um, One thing I've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but I wanted to emphasize it. Know that you guys are the constituents and not the lobbyists and I'm not saying this because one is better than the other, but because you guys bring a really great and awesome perspective of the constituents. There's those of us who work here in DC and do this every day, but you guys have that real personal connection to your district and or your state. And so honestly, I think they like to hear from you guys more than they like to hear from us here in DC sometimes, because again, you guys have that real boots on the ground perspective. And even though sometimes I feel like we can get discouraged and think they don't want to hear what's going on for their constituents, I promise they actually really do. And so again, kind of like I was talking about the beginning, if you can bring a personal, hey, you know, my mom grew up in that neighborhood, um, or again, tying it into some of our topics, for instance, like the website accessibility <sharp inhale> bill, you can say, hey, the website for our state college system isn't accessible you're tying it back to their their backyard so to speak um so don't feel like you have to be the lobbyist you know that's what that's what we do here in dc you guys are the constituents and i think that a lot of times that's a lot more valuable so again just bringing that personal touch to the table
2: can i add something to that yeah Um,
4: please when The first time I went to D.C. and and went into the Capitol, I have to say I was pretty intimidated by the whole process. And, you know, I was kind of nervous about going into these people's offices and, you know, a little bit intimidated by the whole thing because, you know, it it is, this is big. Um, But what I reminded myself of was um, that how important it is to remember that they work for us and not the other Mm -hmm. way around we elect them so we need to be respectful of them as people and the position they hold but we also need to remember that we're really on equal footing because they're they're responsible to us as the voters
0: exactly great thanks becky Um, Just a few basic etiquette things that probably don't even need to be said because you guys are all on top of it. But just to remind everybody, log on early. If you're doing it virtual, get there a couple minutes early. Let's not be the ones who are there. Definitely don't want to be late, but even sometimes being exactly on time, you never know if you're going to have technical issues or if you're accidentally muted. So just get there a couple minutes early. It's always really helpful. If you're in person, if you're fortunate to be in person, same thing. No, don't get there an hour early if you're in person because sitting in their, their (laughs) lobby is going to be really awkward. But again, getting there five minutes early, I think that makes us look good. It shows that we care, that we're ready to talk to them and that, you know, we're, we're, we're on top of things again. Respect their time. Yeah. Yep. exactly. Respect their time. Dress professionally. Again, shake their hands. Uh, just kind of all, you know, just the basic etiquette. I think we we all learned growing up. But again, we just want to come off as professional and, you know, be respected um, when we do this.
3: The other thing that I prefer to do um, with respect to Zoom platform appointments, I offer them, if you have an available Zoom account either your own or someone else's that you're working with, I offer them to set up the Zoom account on myself. And I give them that preference because then I'm in control of the account I'm using. Uh, Who knows, they might come up with a Teams thing. And sometimes Teams takes a little while longer to get in or you have a problem with getting in because it's a different technology and you might not know. uh, So this way you have control. But if they don't want you to do it, if they want to do it, then of course that's what you do.
0: I haven't and come I can, across one once that wanted
4: to do it. They always say, oh, good.
0: <laughs> so. I was about to say the same thing, Becky. I think they love when other people do it because they're scheduling medians all day. So whenever someone else does it, they're like, sweet. Yep. <laughs> I don't have to do it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and they also, I think, are a little bit thrilled uh, by the fact that a blind person can do that. I think that's mm-hmm. just one more you know, shit in your favor, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Great. i um, getting close to the bottom of the list, but this is going to really tie into when we start doing our mock um, conversations. Be prepared for different experiences. I wish I could say that every conversation, every meeting is going to look the same, but they will not. Just as all human beings are different, all congressional staffers are different. And so as you'll see when... Um, becky and jeff um, act as our congressional staffers some are the most excited people and they will ask you 20 million questions and you can barely open your mouth some will stare at you and never say a word thankfully most are somewhere in between but we we just want you guys to know that it can just vary so wildly so be prepared that's when you know knowing your topic well can help because then if they don't say anything you have content to talk about but if they have a lot of questions you'll know your topic but again, if you don't know the answer to the question, don't make it up. Um, we never want to you know, pretend we know the answer. So if you sincerely don't know the answer, that's okay. Just say, you know what, that's a really great question. I'm gonna take it back and I will email you back with the, the answer. So never make up an answer. Um, and then that leads me to one of my last final tips. Send a follow-up thank you email. That is so helpful because again, the biggest thing we want is to create connections. It's networking, right? And creating connections that we can have to go on um, for the future. So after the meeting, send a thank you email and say, thank you so much. Here's more literature. I have the answer to your question or just as simple as it was really great talking to you. I hope we can work with you moving on in the future. Anything else you guys want to add? I
2: don't think so.
0: Perfect. Dude, we are like right on time. That took exactly 15 minutes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. So now, now we're going to do some, um, I'll call them mock conversations. Um, we'll try to do about 10 minutes per piece. We can run a little over if necessary, but we just wanted to paint a picture for everybody of what it's going to look like. I am going to play you guys, the constituent going in to talk to my congressional staffers. I keep saying congressional staffers because I'd say 95% of the time, you're going to talk to a staffer, which is one of the employees of the Congress members or senators. Every once in a while, you will get the senator or Congress member themselves, which is really exciting. Um, but I just always like to tell people it's probably a staffer. I don't want you to expect that you're going to be talking to you know, Schumer himself. It probably won't happen. But if it does, let us know, because that's exciting. Um, so I'm going to play the constituent, and Jeff and Becky are going to play the staffers, and we're going to show you what two different situations might look like. Um, So who would like to go first?
4: I'll go first if you want.
0: Sure, let's do it. So welcome
4: to Tuesday afternoon at the improv. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so are we in person?
0: Uh, Yeah, let's pretend we're in person. Okay,
4: all right. So come on in.
0: Great, thank you
4: uh there's a chair right over there
0: great thank you thanks well thank you so much for having us we really appreciate that you um took some time to let us come into your office i know you have a busy schedule
4: yeah it's kind of crazy
0: i'm sure so let me introduce your introduce myself my name is claire stanley um i live in maryland just outside of dc in your district um and i'm a member of the american council of the blind okay Um, So we have several different um, what we call imperatives, just some basic issues that impact the blind community that I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about. They have pending legislation that we would love to um, get ongoing support for to push these bills through through the process. So I'd love to just tell you about some of the experiences that blind constituents deal with and how legislation could help, you know, move them forward. Okay, go ahead. Great. Uh, Well, thank you. Um, and please feel free to, you know, chime in with any questions. I don't want to, you know, just assume you know what's going on. Um, so one of our big pieces of legislation we are advocating for is a website accessibility bill. Um, I have the name and the bill numbers um, there on that that one pager I have for you. Um, okay. It was introduced last session. It hasn't been reintroduced, so we don't have current bill numbers. But hopefully soon it will be reintroduced. Um, Okay. So kind of by way of background, unfortunately, a a significant number of websites and applications, software applications are inaccessible for persons who are blind or low vision, um, as well as other people. It's not just the blind community, but other disabilities. Um, And because of the incompatibility between the design of the coding and the 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 device a lot of websites aren't usable for people who are blind so i might try to go to a doctor's office website and because it's coded incorrectly i can't do anything independently um, and that's pretty frustrating because i want to be independent and have privacy when i do things like that
4: how do you how do you read what's on the web
0: yeah for sure that's a great question um so there's a lot of what we call um excess- assistive technology, excuse me, assistive technology or AT. Um, So for instance, for those of us who are blind or low vision, we often use JAWS, and it's a screen reading software that reads everything out loud. Um, There's also magnification programs. Um, But again, if the website isn't designed properly, then that software conflicts with the way the website's designed, and I can't read properly everything that's on the screen, different things are labeled incorrectly. Um, And so again, if I try to go on like a doctor's website, I might not be able to fill out the form all by myself. So that great assistive technology is incompatible with the website.
4: Okay, well, I will speak to the congressman about this.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, As you can see on the one pager, um, it was introduced by Sarbanes and Duckworth last session. So um, it was introduced and we're trying to get it reintroduced. All right. Great. Um, One other bill, I I know we're running low on time. So one other bill I'd love to bring up to you um, is very similar, but has to do with medical devices. Um, And we have the um, bill information there for you again. But basically, we are living in a generation where we are fortunate to be able to have medical devices um, at home, you know, things like um, oxygen tanks and uh, diabetic devices to read our glucose and to distribute insulin. But unfortunately, a lot of them are inaccessible for honestly, some of the same reasons I was just talking about. Um, And a lot of times, it's also just because they're not designed with things like audio output. And so people with different uh, illnesses who are blind, can't take care of themselves independently, which is very frustrating, because people who are blind can be very independent. Um, So we want to pass this law that would require um, the um, the features on these different devices to be made accessible um, for instance a lot of people go blind because they have diabetes and so we want diabetic devices to be accessible for the blind community well yeah i guess that makes sense
4: I can speak to the congressman about that make sure he's aware of it
0: Okay, yeah, thank you. I'm sure even within your own district, we could um, point to some big communities of constituents who have diabetes or other again medical conditions where they might need oxygen or um, at home renal devices or you know all kinds of things. It's a growing a growing community, for instance. We all know that the aging population in the US is going up and so it's definitely a growing community that need these medical devices. Right. Okay, well, is that it? Yeah, those are those are the two issues I wanted to bring up. Do you have any questions that I can answer on those? No, thank you. Thank you for coming in. Okay, well, thank you. Um, here's the one pager. Please feel free to um, read them and see if you have any questions and we're happy to follow up. Okay, thank okay, you. thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Um, <laughs> so that was our first example. We can take questions afterwards, but you can see that that was a less than enthusiastic staffer which you will see Um, so Jeff you are up
3: okay so we'll do zoom I guess Uh, just to have the opposite sort of thing perfect hi there I guess we both made it on the zoom didn't we
0: we did it we did thank you so much for taking time to speak with me
3: great but I am Jeff Tom, as as you know from the letter, and I am with Congressman Jones. Uh, okay. So.
0: Great. Well, let me introduce myself real quick. My name is Claire Stanley, and I'm a constituent um, from your district, and um, I, I'm part of the American Council of the Blind. So here to talk about some issues that impact people who are blind or have low vision. Great. Great. Well, feel free to jump in with any questions. Actually, I
3: do have a question. Um, yeah, and, I, and I hope I don't offend you with this, but I don't know many blind persons and I've noticed just looking at you, how color coordinated you are. How do blind people manage to do that? I, 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 man, I have a hard time doing that. It was me.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And I'm happy to answer any questions about blindness. You know, we, we definitely like to help the, the community understand more. There's actually a lot of what I'd call tricks of the trade. On how you can label your clothes um, with different marking devices, how you organize your clothes in your closet so you know what's what. Um, so we have a lot of ways we we identify what we're wearing. There are even apps on your phones now that can tell you what color things are. So lots of tricks and toys out there. Wow, too.
3: I yeah. never would have believed all that could, have, could <laughs> yeah. be on the horizon.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Actually, that's a great lead-in to talk about one of the bills we want to talk about when I talked about technology. So can I tell you about one of the bills?
3: Sure.
0: So we are promoting a bill that has to do with website and app software accessibility. Um, It was introduced last session by Sarbanes in the House and Duckworth in the Senate. um, And we're hoping and and pushing to get it reintroduced this session. Um, Because I don't know if you're aware, but unfortunately, many websites and applications are inaccessible for people who are blind or have low vision, as well as other disabilities. I should add. So um,
3: I, I, I'm kind of surprised that it, it's such an important item. I mean, as I said, most of the blind people I know about, like you know, they they sort of they don't really have a clue as to how to you know use the website. They just sort of you know they're, they're in their homes and they're maybe they're reading a book or whatever. But I, I'm surprised that people who are blind use a lot of, uh, of the internet what do you what do you use the internet for
0: yeah no for sure i can understand how that might be kind of um new for people who aren't blind or have low vision and haven't um interacted with you know the digital world in that that way but actually if websites or designed properly they're very usable for people who are blind um, and speaking for myself as somebody who is blind, I use websites and apps for everything, for my work, for um, filling out doctor's paperwork, for shopping. I spend a lot of time shopping online, um, for just hanging out with friends, you know, and talking on Zoom like we are right now. Um, so right. actually, if you design a website correctly, it can be very accessible.
3: I see that there's a machine on your desk there. What what exactly is that machine Do Is it related to your blindness somehow? or
0: yeah, if, if you're pointing to the one I think you are, um, I have a refreshable braille display. Um, so everything that I write in this device using the braille code can show up on the braille display and I can read it. So I can take all kinds of notes on, you know, any questions you might have for me. Um, I can even sync it with my my smartphone and use my use it as a display for my smartphone. So that's amazing. 20 technology. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty great.
3: Anyway, sorry, I, you get back to your to your you know presentation.
0: No, these are great questions, and it's helpful for you to understand so we can explain our, our needs. Um, so, as great as technology is, if it's not designed and coded properly, unfortunately, sometimes websites can be really hard to maneuver through with our screen reading software. Um, you might hear people talk about JAWS. It's a funny name, but JAWS is a software that reads everything out loud that's on our computer screen. But if a website's designed poorly, it doesn't interact with that software well, and then we can't necessarily use the website independently. But it has nothing to do with our capabilities or lack thereof, but it has to do with the way the website's set up. So this bill requires the government um, to you know, help develop some new regulations and standards to make websites accessible, and also to have a way to enforce that asks so that website designers don't just say whatever we won't do it but that it'll actually be enforced and that we can make sure websites going forward are usable for people who are blind or have other disabilities
3: so is there a bill we can i can recommend that my boss uh, sign on to because this is a great area and i'm sure he would be more than interested to work with you on this bill
0: that's so exciting. We love to hear that. Um, so yes, um, I have the information right here. Like I said, it was introduced last session in the 117th. Hasn't been reintroduced this session, um, but we've been working with the introducers from last session. They seem excited to do it again, and so we're we're working really hard. So uh, any input you can give to your colleagues to get that going That's would be great. phenomenal. Yeah, That's
3: great. I I will certainly talk with them about that, and I can't make any guarantees, but we'll certainly do our best. Unfortunately, uh, this has been an amazing interview. I wish I had more time, but I've got to go on to my next one, and so hopefully we'll be able to do this again.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. I'll leave this one pager here so you can see our other issues as well. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Awesome. I took so much
3: of her time with my stupid questions
0: (laughs) that she didn't get to go over the
3: rest of her agenda. That's
4: that's right. Yeah. And I I think all of us have experienced both types of interviews, and some, most of them are somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, But I mean, and we've all had some amusing experiences in in our travels through Capitol Hill, Um, like my guide dog could not resist somebody's lunch remains. They had dropped in their wastebasket that he had to walk right by to get into the <laughs> office. You know, that was my previous, not this one.
0: Great. Uh, well, we can open for questions before we do that. You guys kind of already were commenting, but Jeff and Becky, do you guys have anything you want to add? And then if we can turn it over to our, uh, our Zoom host, if we can take start taking some questions as well.
3: Well, Absolutely. the one thing i would say is that claire didn't let anything rattle her she she went she went with the flow and that's yep. what you gotta do
4: yep she uh she she did i i was impressed that when i told her the chair was over there she didn't say could you please be more specific
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: in yeah. person that's probably a little bit harder <laughs> yeah
3: But the one thing you have to do when you get someone who is a little overzealous, like I was, is try to turn the question back to your topic as quickly as you can, because you never know um, how many more crazy questions you're going to get. So you, you don't may want be, to spend yeah. any more time on that tangent than you, than you have to.
4: You have to manage your time better than Jeff was managing his.
3: But That's there right. were
4: still questions that it was real easy to, to bring back to relate to the topics at hand. And that was helpful.
0: Great. Do we have any questions from the audience?
5: We do. Uh, we're gonna start with an
2: area code of 217 ending in 735.
6: Hey, Bell, it's Ray Campbell. I'm on my landline this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> okay, um, just just want to add uh, three real quick comments. Um, you guys covered a, pretty much a, of it all, as I expected you would, but um, this is really for people in person, well, everybody, but if you're in person on Capitol Hill, number one, if you're a little nervous about getting around Capitol Hill, There are people all over the place who will help you uh, find offices and that kind of thing. But when you're done with one appointment and you want to go to the next one, just ask them. Say, hey, could you have someone walk me to the next appointment if it's, you know, in the same building? Or if you're going, say, from the House to the Senate side, make sure you do your House appointments in one block and your Senate in the Mm -hmm. other block because Mm -hmm. you'll be going all over the place. Or if you need to walk, say, down to catch a cab or, or an Uber or something they'll be glad to do that for you that's uh, very very true number two since we're coming out of covid i would strongly suggest and this is what i'm going to do that when you go into an office ask them if they want you to wear a mask um, some may still want you to do that and so Uh, Make sure you, you know, I'd suggest maybe having a mask with you just in case that would uh, happen. And the third and most important thing, after your interview, when you get home, sit down and write a letter to the person you talked to, say thank you. Thank them for the interview. Uh, Follow up, maybe a summary of the things that you talked about, any commitments that you made to follow up and follow through with those if you did and um all of that and make sure to get their email address address just ask them for one of their business cards and they'll be glad to give those to you just wanted to share those quick points great presentation
0: Thanks. thanks ray thanks ray
5: okay next is janine
2: hi guys Hi, Jeff. Hi, Claire. It's so amazing to hear you back. And Becky, (laughs) I thank you so much for the role-playing. I am so excited to go in person. I've been doing it on Zoom for three years, and I loved hearing the back and forth. Um, I am a little nervous in person. I guess my question is, and I've talked to a couple people, but Claire, I think you're the expert because you did this all the time. And So I, I was wondering, do I need to wear a backpack? with my professional shoes. And then I can wear my tennis shoes or can I wear my tennis shoes in? Because I hear there's lots and lots and lots of walking and And I ha- I got special masks made with USA on them and I'm going to give them to the people I meet because
0: my boyfriend's mom makes masks. So I have presents to leave with everybody I meet with. First of all, that is really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know what? I think if you wear tennis shoes, it, and it's totally a personal preference. You know, if you want to wear, I was on the Hill uh, a month ago and I wore high heels all day. And by the end of the day, I was in pain. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to wear tennis shoes with your professional pants, I honestly, I think it's a personal preference on whether or not you want to wear which kind of shoe wear just make it again look professional don't wear your beat up old sneakers that have holes (laughs) in them and are covered in dirt you know just just make sure they look nice but at the end of the day if you want to wear sneakers versus dress shoes because you're going to be hoofing it all over the capital I think people understand it's just about making yourself look nice and presentable.
4: I think okay. we're more in a business casual mode these days than than we okay. used to be. The first time I went, I wore high heels and I thought I was going to die. Yeah. So the second time I went, I had some in-between shoes. They were, they were decent flats, but they were flats and I, they were comfortable and I wore those.
0: And okay. sometimes cool. I've even seen people, as far as what you're wearing, I've even seen people just wear sweatshirts because they'll wear the sweatshirt of the the team that like say you're mm-hmm. you are from oklahoma and you wear an o of you sweatshirt they love that kind of stuff so you yeah. know it's, you could even dress down but it's all one just look clean and professional and two know your audience
3: <laughs> so uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna push back a little about that and maybe i'm over sensitive uh-huh. um because i do i i totally agree with you there are a lot of people that do that but i think um as a blind person we are also ambassadors for our disability group and so I am a little uh, loath to do the sort of dress down thing with with some sort of you know uh, sweatshirt that that will identify me as in some sort of, I could wear an, an ACB sweatshirt, for example. but I, I don't think I quite want to, present myself in that manner but it is a personal thing and I can understand people who might feel different than I but no
0: and I think that's a really good point that it can be a personal decision but I think the most basic things be clean do not wear you know five inch heels that are neon green with you know a polka dot you know know what i mean just think very cognizantly about your wearing you like jeff said so well you you're presenting yourself but you're also representing the whole blind community
7: this is doug i had two quick things yep Uh, that was your next raised hand (laughs) (laughs) um so uh, one thing is uh, I, I remember uh, somebody was talking about etiquette and they said you know they said somebody came in with uh, you know it was uh, I think uh, 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 talking about breast cancer and I don't know pulled out a you know a, you know pulled out a form of, of naked breasts or something like that you know so and, and it kind of grossed people out so I think we need to be a little bit uh, uh, talking you know what what Jeff was saying about being professional you know we don't want to pop our our, you know, our prosthetic eye out and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I think we want to, you know, sort of, you know, make allusion to it, but not, you know, not really pop it out. Um, But the other thing that I was thinking uh, when when Jeff was, uh, you know, Jeff took most of the time, but was really trying to understand how blind people live. And I don't think we ought to cut that off as long as, you know, if we can get through the four imperatives, that's great. If we can't, probably we could just, you know, as a part of the thank you say, I, you know, I didn't get to discuss two other things with you. Can we set up another meeting or a phone call or something like that, you know, where we can, you know, cover those other two things.
0: I think that's a great point. I think it was Cindy LeBon said one year. I apologize, Cindy, if it wasn't you, um, this could have been someone else, but when we were talking about one of the bills in the past years that had to do with medicare funding low vision devices somebody had actually taken a low vision device out of their bag um and again sometimes we might think oh man like i'm doing this dog and pony show but sometimes it is helpful because they have no idea what low vision aids are all about you know so there there's definitely is a time and a place and
7: actually I, yeah I'm sorry I was- I, I'm sorry I was gonna I was gonna totally agree with that because I, I with these zoom meetings I can walk over to my flat screen treadmill and show them that there mm-hmm. are no markings mm-hmm. on it and yep. I can show them the the CCTV that costs twenty four hundred dollars but is not covered by Medicare you know those kinds of things so I, I think uh, actually the zoom calls I think make it really easy to to uh, to sh- to actually show people uh, you know people uh, real examples of what we're trying to talk about and you know what the what the thing on the paper
3: really means
0: Mm -hmm. yeah jeff were you going to say something
3: no doug said it really well i'll leave it at that
0: perfect
5: okay your next hand is judy
8: hi everyone thanks for the um good presentation, I just kind of want to give a little bit of an insight to the person asking about wearing sneakers. Our vice president wears sneakers a lot to a lot of the meetings, just for those who are not aware. Um, they are kind of nice high-end sneakers, but she she uses her sneakers well. And then in regards to what to wear, I've been, uh, I've actually even testified at Capitol Hill. Now I was granted as a nurse at the time, um, but we all showed up with our scrub tops on, um, and nobody looked down on us, um, and it might have been considered casual, but it was also considered this was our identification. So, just another way to look at identification things. I totally understand what Jeff was saying about representing the blind community, but logo wear, or in ours, were scrub tops with logo wear that said our nurses' association on it. So it wasn't just a work scrub top; it was a specific scrub top that said our uh, specific Nurses Association. So just a couple of different ways to look at things.
9: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, good
9: point. Mm -hmm.
5: Uh, Next is Doreen.
10: Thanks everybody. This is a really great presentation. Um, I wanted to follow up with just a couple more things. I agree with Judy. Sometimes, if you all have affiliate convention t shirts or something, that can be a really powerful statement. Um, There's lots of ways to do shoes that aren't spike heels. Um, I also wanted to just make the point that the follow up report is really important. I was just at a state lobby day and several of us had conversations. I actually got to meet with two of the three representatives from my district, which was kind of exciting. Um, But they brought, they told us things. They're like, oh, this other bill that you might be interested in. Or, well, this is why I didn't sign on to this bill. And that kind of stuff is really valuable. It's really valuable for your delegation. I think it's probably also really valuable for, um, for ACB And there was some other thing I was some other point I was going to make, but um, um, oh, I oh the other thing is um, if you're on Zoom, make sure it's a professional sound environment. A couple Mm -hmm. years, a a couple of years ago for our WCB convention, I had way too much fun writing a, a how to do it wrong script, and there was way too much background noise, and the person had dropped a bunch of things, and so I just keep your keep your sound environment professional would Be my and
3: your lighting too. have someone if you can't see it all have someone yeah. check the lightings because otherwise it can be you know black and and it won't yeah. show up very well when they're looking at right. you
4: they won't see you at all i had that yeah. experience yeah. one time yeah yeah
3: yeah and they, they like seeing people
10: and they do definitely have your camera on um if you can yeah as I don't at the moment. But anyway, thank you everybody. This is either. a really-
3: Thank you.
0: Um, thank you. Really great. I think we have time for one more question or comment. Hey, Michael. Oh.
9: There
11: we go. All right, there it goes. Uh, two quick things. First of all, if you're going onto the hill with uh, a group of people, a small group from your state or whatever, it's probably good to talk ahead of time about what you're going to wear because I had an experience one time going to lobby with the very special arts people who were popular back in the 90s. And they asked all of the delegates coming in from out of state from various states to wear their very special arts Vidal Sassoon t-shirts which I was a little uncomfortable with because that's not normally what I wore to the Hill, but I did as I was asked. And all of the very special art staff from Washington, D.C. showed up in their business attire dressed to the nines. And it was almost like, these are the show ponies, but we are the people that you are supposed to listen to. We don't want to project that kind of an image as ACB. Everyone who is going has a reason to be there. And if you wanna have a coordinated look with your uh, uh, affiliate sweatshirt, great. Uh, Let's have everybody do that. But if you have one person who shows up in a business suit and two people in sweatshirts, uh, that creates a situation where it's almost drawing the focus to that one person. And that may not be what you want. And the second point that I kind of wanted to reinforce was one that Jeff discussed a little bit, and that is if somebody wants to know how your braille note works or your bioptic lens or uh, whatever, it's important to be polite and to answer the question, but it's also very important then to take the reins and bring that back to whatever topic you're there to cover. Otherwise, The staff love to run away with that sort of thing. And then it's, well, thank you very much for coming in. And you haven't gotten to anything that was really important to you to say. Thank you.
4: Can I just add something that what you were talking about? If often you people that are going in person do go with other members of their state. So there's usually two or three of you. There may well be two or three of you visiting an office together. Make sure you talk about who's going to discuss what so that you're not sitting there go, oh, do you wanna talk about this? Or, or, or you're not talking over each other. Just plan that out ahead of time. And that way, a couple of you can be experts on a couple of the, of the imperatives and, and make it a much more, a smoother presentation.
3: In fact, one thing we've always done in California, whether it's in person or Zoom, is to give a chance for practice or, or mock interviews. Um, so that people can get feel more comfortable with the topics we're presenting.
0: Great. I hate to cut us off, but I have to cut us off because we're a little past and we do have presenters coming for our next presentation. So thank you so much, Becky and Jeff. You guys were wonderful. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, see, you, uh,
4: see you there.
0: See you, see you in D.C. <laughs> see you in D.C. And do we have Clark?
2: We have me. Um, I can lead us in this panel. This is our panel again. Super.
12: Um, good.
2: Hi, folks, this is Swatha. Um, and our next thank you to Claire and Becky and Jeff um, for the last session. Um, next one is, what to, issues around have, housing advocacy? And with me and Claire Stanley from NDRN, um, as well as Janine Warden from Department of Housing Urban Development and Billy Lynch also with HUD. So if they're here, can they um say hi or unmute? We can get started.
13: We're both here.
2: Great. Um Claire to call?
0: Sure. Um so hi everybody. This is Claire Stanley again. Um, Like Swatha said, I work at the National Disability Rights Network as a public policy analyst and I'm really excited um, for our two wonderful guest speakers. Um, Swatha and I have a list of a few questions that we just wanted to go through, Um, but before we do that, uh, Janine and Billy, do you want to quickly introduce yourself and tell us what you do at HUD?
5: Sure, I'll start. Um, I'm Janine Warden, and I am the Associate General Counsel for Fair Housing. And what that means is I'm the highest career person in the office of general counsel who deals with fair housing and civil rights issues, both from an enforcement perspective and from the perspective of causing the department to comply with um, civil rights requirements. And uh, My primary client is the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, but the entire department is my client. Billy?
13: Hey everyone, uh, Billy Lynch. Um, I am Assistant General Counsel, so I work for Janine, and uh, I work on a lot of uh, accessibility matters and race discrimination matters, uh, national origin, related issues across the agency, um, both with, uh, as Janine mentioned, fair housing and equal opportunity, and also with the agency itself. Um, And in in particular, um, I have a significant interest in accessible technology issues. um, Prior to uh, following Janine to HUD, Uh, we both were at the Department of Justice, and um, I spent some time, among other things, working on accessible technology issues. So I'm really pleased to join folks today and um, to talk about, uh, try to answer some of the questions. I also just want to say, um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Claire uh, for many years. So I'm, uh, this is wonderful um, to, to be on the hot seat, Claire. Thank you for, for the opportunity.
0: Thank you, Billy. I, I'm very fortunate to have known them for many years. <laughs> Sorry,
5: I was just going to add that um, it's a pleasure to be invited to speak with this group on an issue that's really important to um, people who are blind or have low vision. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm legally blind and have low vision and uh, am really interested myself in advancing access for people who are blind and have low vision and uh, look forward to working with you going forward.
0: Great, thanks, Janine. Swatha, I can kick us off with the first question and then we can ping pong back and forth. Yeah, Um, let's go. So uh, Janine and Billy, we will let you guys decide who wants to answer first and feel free to go back and forth. Um, But let's start with the basics. Um, So what should persons who are blind or low vision know about housing discrimination laws? So for instance, the Fair Housing Act, Section 504, or the Americans with Disabilities Act? Um, And are there any construction related requirements pertaining to people um, who are blind or low vision?
5: All right. So I'm going to kick it off. And I figure what I'll start with is the Fair Housing Act part of the discussion. And then I'll segue over to Billy so he can handle the Section 504 and the ADA part of the discussion. So the Fair Housing Act applies to almost all rental housing uh, across the country. It also applies to the sale of housing, to mortgage lending, uh, banks and other entities that deal with that, uh, mortgage insurance, and renters insurance, and state and local regulation of land use and zoning relating to housing and so it's a very powerful statute and it has um, a unique enforcement authority structure um i'll start with the substantive provisions of the fair housing act as it relates to disability discrimination um but except with respect to the uh, construction related requirements All of the protections of the Fair Housing Act apply to persons on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, sex, um, familial status, which means having children in a family, and individuals with disabilities. So there are several basic protections under the Fair Housing Act. Uh, The first is a prohibition of um, discriminating in the sale, the rental, or otherwise making available housing. And so what that means is uh, someone cannot refuse to sell or rent to you because of your disability, and um, they can't refuse to provide housing to you. And housing could include such things as access to a shelter, or other residential accommodation provided by a government or a university because of your disability. The second provision is that you cannot be discriminated against on the basis um, in the terms and conditions of your housing. So if um, you are blind or have low vision um, and a landlord thinks that Maybe you're not going to be uh, as good at care and uptake of your housing as other people. They can't require you to pay an additional deposit to pay higher rent, or they can't really impose any other term or condition on you than is different from what is imposed on everyone else. Uh, The next provision under the Fair Housing Act is reasonable accommodation provision. And the language of the statute says that a housing provider cannot refuse to provide a reasonable accommodation that may be necessary for an individual with a disability to enjoy and use housing. Uh, And I'm happy to talk about that in more detail as we go on in this discussion but I want to cover the other two provisions of the act. Actually, there are three. The third is that you cannot make discriminatory statements or advertisements in the context of housing. So uh, it would be illegal for a housing provider to say they won't rent to people with disabilities, including people who are blind or have low vision, or people with children, or any of the other protected classes. Then there is also a confusing requirement called reasonable modifications. And it's different than terminology that's used under um, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. A reasonable modification is when you want a change to the rental unit where you live or to the common area of a property because of a disability-related need. And under the Fair Housing Act, uh, you it, it's a violation of the Act for a housing provider to refuse to allow you to make that kind of modification at your own expense. And that's one place where there's a big difference between the Fair Housing Act and the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act as Billy's going to explain. And then finally, there are design and construction requirements relating to new multifamily housing. New multifamily housing is defined as any housing that has four or more units that was built after March 13th, 1991. So all, pretty much all new multifamily housing that's been built since then or in the future. And um, it's required to have certain features of accessible or adaptable design. And I'm gonna be very frank with you, very few of those requirements actually relate to access by persons who are blind or have low vision. There are common area requirements where someone um, signage must be accessible. And there are common area requirements relating to audible alarms and uh, uh, objects that are protruding objects that could cause a hazard or um, unprotected stairways. But those are really the extent of the provisions of the Fair Housing Act that relate to accessibility for people who are blind or have low vision in the design and construction context. So that's the Fair Housing Act in a nutshell. I'll leave it to Billy to talk about section 504 and the ADA. I figure um, that way you'll be able to differentiate between us.
13: So uh, thanks, Janine. So I'm gonna talk about some overlapping federal laws uh, and some of the different requirements that apply. Uh, And the the reason that that's important is um, some of the housing providers that that folks may come across may have different obligations and you may have different rights. Um, Section 504, as Janine mentioned, is a, a statute that was enacted in 1973 that prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability in any program or activity that receives federal financial assistance. Um, Each federal agency is responsible for enforcing it. The Department of Justice also has a role. We at HUD uh, enforce Section 504 uh, through a variety of means, uh, including investigations and can even bring fund termination proceedings or make referrals to DOJ. Um, HUD provides, uh, in FY23, for example, HUD provided $72 billion in federal funds. Um, the, the way that that statute works is if um, a entity receives uh, federal funds, even a dollar, then the entire program or activity is covered. And it also covers uh, sub-recipients as well. A lot of uh, federal uh, grantees they receive money and then they give it out. So for example, a state will receive money and then they'll give it to a local government or a nonprofit. Uh, sometimes there's you know, several layers to that. Um, and the reason that's important is because there are some unique um, and enhanced requirements that come with uh, section 504 coverage. Separately, uh, I'm sure folks are very familiar with the ADA. Uh, We also enforce the ADA, um, in particular Title II of the ADA um, at HUD, uh, as do other federal agencies. And um, Title II applies to uh, all of the services programs and activities of state and local governments and all of their instrumentalities. it's virtually everything any state or local government does related to housing, community development. And because HUD is involved with providing funds to, you'd be surprised um, at the reach of the funds, the, the $72 billion per year-ish that we provide, um, they reach down to things like uh, street corners and um, sidewalks and bike lanes and rec centers and uh, even schools, um, as well as housing, community colleges are often covered, sometimes housing at, uh, universities. Um, there, the programs we have, um, provide large amounts of funding that go to a lot of different places. So the reach is, is quite expansive. So just kind of setting the stage about, um, those two laws prohibit discrimination. They're, they're similar, in their reach, they have a lot of similar provisions like Janine covered um, under the Fair Housing Act, but they're framed in a broader way because they apply outside of the housing context as well. Uh, But they also have some unique things that that you should know about. Um, They have similar uh, but different prohibition or requirements that um, are uh, covered entities, um, provide reasonable accommodations, And not only to provide reasonable accommodations, which can include policy changes or practice changes, uh, but to also include um, structural modifications, like the reasonable modifications Janine mentioned under the Fair Housing Act, but these entities have to pay for those things, which is is critical. Um, So one of the important things we'd always look at is their coverage under these other laws to determine if uh, the you know, if the housing provider or other or entity is required to pay for a particular structural modification, um, there are also uh, unique um, federal accessibility standards that apply under those laws. I'm not going to go deeply into uh, each of them because it's uh, it can be quite confusing. But um, sometimes there's a misconception that. Um, if something was built before a particular date it's grandfathered, that doesn't exist under 504 in the ADA. Um, If the program is covered, uh, then there is at least what's called a program access obligation, uh, which means that the, um, the, the covered entity is obligated to either provide access to the program or to make structural modifications to get there. And that can include things like accessible routes and, you know, getting rid of those protruding objects that that Janine had mentioned, or um, making sure that, you know, uh, there's a ramp uh, with, you know, clear markings and um, even uh, detectable warnings can be required in certain circumstances. Um, And but there are also requirements under these laws for what are, what's called new construction, which um, generally is stuff that has been uh, developed um, either by a state or local government or with uh, HUD or other federal funds since um, late 80s, early 90s, or has been altered or what we call it HUD substantially altered, which is like a, basically a major uh, rehab of a particular housing development. And there are very um, specific um, requirements as far as the design and construction of those facilities, many of which, um, some of which I should say, um, although putting an asterisk because of what Janine mentioned about um, the when the framers of these uh, laws were putting them into place, they spent a lot of time thinking about physical accessibility and not so much about Um, accessibility for the blindness community, and also um, the world obviously has changed significantly as far as technology is concerned. So there are a lot of unique considerations that have come up in the past um, uh, 30 years. Um, But there are specific requirements that um, housing developments under uh, both 504 and the ADA have at least, um, if they're new construction, have at least 2% um, sensory units. Um, And those units have specific requirements um, that are meant to um, uh, support um, independent living by persons who uh, are blind or are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, Also supplemented with reasonable accommodations. Um, Then the last thing I'm going to mention before turning it back over is In addition to these requirements under 504 and the ADA, there's also an obligation to quote, take appropriate steps to ensure effective communication through the provision of appropriate auxiliary aids and services. And that essentially means that when information is being communicated in all the different ways by one of these covered entities, and there are many, many thousands of them across the country, probably millions, that they are obligated to ensure that that communication is effective. And if that requires the use of auxiliary aids and services, that they are um, maybe obligated to use a particular one, including those that um, the individual with the disability specifically requests. They're supposed to give what's called primary consideration to that. Um, but it must be effective. So um, if it is. Um, you know, it could be um, through a website that provides, um, you know, lease up information, um, or you know, provides information about which units are available. That would need to be accessible under this provision. Um, if uh, an individual required um, a lease in an electronic um, version um so it could be used with a screen reader that could be uh or you know enlarged text um that could be required um a whole host of um you know auxiliary aids and services that may be necessary so um in addition to fair housing act required and there are some other requirements under these laws that may be um applicable at different times but that's a, a general overview
2: Great. So thanks for that um, overview of the laws and obligations that housing providers have. Um, since you kind of touched on it, um, what obligations can you kind of expand on what obligations housing providers have to ensure effective communications? You mentioned um, the, the need for for um, alternate means, but could you guys kind of expand on that a little more? And we start Billy.
5: So let me start with the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act does not have a specific provision on effective communication, but effective communication is dealt with under the reasonable accommodation provisions of the Fair Housing Act. So for example, if um, someone uh, someone wanted to um, have a lease in an electronic format, it would be a reasonable accommodation to request that. Or if they wanted their mortgage lending documents to be provided in electronic format, that would also be a reasonable accommodation. If there were some type of a um, an important meeting with a housing provider where, for example, they wanted to talk to uh, a tenant about eviction. And if the person were uh, deaf or hard of hearing and needed an auxiliary aid, such as a sign language interpreter, that would also be a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Housing Act. There are just a wide variety of different reasonable accommodations that can be provided under the Fair Housing Act. Um, but the housing provider may not be required to expend as much. It'll depend on what the housing provider's resources are if they are not recipients of federal financial assistance. Billy?
13: Yeah, so um, auxiliaries and services are, very, are varied. Um, I'm going to read from the DOJ's ADA Title II Regulation as to the list of items. Uh, this was updated in, in 2010, um, and it it lists some things that are a bit antiquated at this point, um, but also includes some updated things that I think are are helpful uh, to know about. Um, and then I'm going to move to talk about some auxiliaries and services that we've specifically required in um, some of our settlements um, that you may be interested in. So. Um, the list in the DOJ's Title II ADA reg says qualified readers, taped texts, audio recordings, brailled materials and displays, screen reader software, magnification software, optical readers, secondary auditory programs, large print materials, accessible electronic and information technology. That one's really important these days, of course. Or other effective methods of making visually delivered materials available to individuals who are blind or have low vision, and so, and I mentioned the the accessible electronic and information technology um, because as you all are obviously very more very aware, um, everything's moving towards this digital you know place. So um, there are and it's just constantly changing and incredibly frustrating, um, I know, um, there's an obligation um, to take appropriate steps by these recipients to ensure they're communicating effectively. And um, there are obligations to ensure that it's accessible, um, electronic and information technology. So, for example, um, we see in the housing context, a lot of new um, touchscreen displays uh, at um front entrances to multifamily buildings if those are covered by section 504 in the ada um we would want those organizations to be providing effective communication um that is probably not a good way to do that um unless they are really thinking carefully about how to make sure that it's accessible um You know, and I mentioned a couple of other examples, but let me let me run through this list. We had a a settlement. um, uh, And and really, this is this is Janine's big, uh, big win. But I'm going to talk about it briefly um, as I supported a little bit on it uh, with the city of L.A. um, a few years ago. And in that case, um, we required the development of an effective communication policy that. identified a number of auxiliary aids and um, accessibility related features for individuals with sensory disabilities. That's what it's called under the, the settlement agreement. And it said, for persons who are blind or have low vision, auxiliary aids and enhanced accessibility features provided pursuant to the city's program shall include, but are not limited to the following, appliances and gym equipment with buttons, knobs, tactile markings and audio features rather than touch screens, Intercom and other security systems and apartment building main entrances must be accessible to persons with sensory disabilities. Entry system cannot rely on a resident's or guest's ability to see. Key fob access to controlled areas rather than touch screens or key cards must be provided. Thermostats and air conditioning controls must have buttons rather than touch screens and must provide audio feedback. Apartment mailboxes must have bump dots or raised lettering. Vending machines must have braille, large print or audio features that enable use without vision, apartment doors and doors to public and common use areas must have raised letters, numbers, braille and large print signage, elevator buttons with braille and raised large print, audible elevator floor indicators. Uh, That's something that's required in new construction, but um, accessible electronic copies of leases development rules and development notices that conform to the W3C's guidance on applying WCAG 2.0 to non-web information and communications technologies, so WCAG 2 ICT, uh, some folks may be familiar with, um, and EPUB 3 for longer documents, enhanced lighting, emergency evacuation and accessible formats, handrails on stairways, contrast on stair noses, effective communication training provided to uh development personnel upon request Uh, when gym equipment and appliances are provided including but not limited to exercise equipment ranges microwaves dishwashers washers and dryers they must be provided so they are accessible to persons who are blind or have low vision the reason i wanted to mention this in addition to the the list of auxiliary aids and services included in this particular agreement is that this affected um over 800 developments across the city of Los Angeles um, and also um, has a, a been a model for other uh, jurisdictions across the country so I, I just wanted to note that to uh, point you to that um, there's much more we could talk about but those are a couple of highlights
2: Thank you um Claire do you want to talk about or do you want you want to lead into a question about um, how folks are complaints about housing
0: yeah um thank you so much so. We've heard some really great um, explanation of the law and all the many different intersecting laws. But now let's get down kind of to the the basics. How can someone file a complaint as it pertains to housing discrimination? I know there's a lot of confusion about where to go. Um, so, can you talk about the FIPs or the FHIPs um, and going to the FHEO of HUD? Sure.
5: I'll take a stab at it and Billy
0: can supplement as needed. So,
5: HUD funds a network of nonprofit organizations across the country that uh, serve as advocates for people who have fair housing issues. And the fair housing issues can arise under any of the statutes that we we talked about, but the funding is specifically uh, provided pursuant to uh, legislation associated with the Fair Housing Act. And um, we don't have one of these organizations in every community, but we do have a list of these organizations uh, that you can provide to your membership. And we've sent you a link, and I can also send you a separate document listing them. So uh, you can either go to one of these organizations, one of these FIPS, as we call them, and they will work with you directly either to uh, contact a housing provider on your behalf or to work with you to file a complaint with the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at HUD. And um, HUD has a complaint process that's fairly similar to the complaint process that's operated at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission related to employment, except At HUD, we deal with housing and community uh, development programs. So under the Fair Housing Act, um, uh, all you need to do is allege the uh, conduct that uh, you believe violated your rights under the Fair Housing Act and um, identify uh, those entities that were involved in the denial of rights. And um, that complaint goes to the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, and that complaint can be done in writing or orally. And um, the FHEO office uh, or a state agency that is contracted to FHEO will follow up on the complaint and conduct an investigation and attempt to conciliate the complaint. Um, And so uh, we actually, from the FHEO perspective, um, if there's not a state agency in the area that has an agreement with HUD, FHEO itself does the investigations and it has an investigative staff. If it's a systemic complaint, then um, typically it is our office and the Office of General Counsel that works with The investigators in the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity to jointly investigate and achieve a resolution to the issue. So, the unique part of the process under the Fair Housing Act is uh, if we cannot achieve an amicable resolution um, that uh, resolves the issues for the complainant, and we believe there is reasonable cause uh, that discrimination occurred. Um, my office in uh, HUD OGC files a charge of discrimination against the housing provider. And then any party to that charge can uh, decide either whether they're going to stay at HUD and go through an ALJ process where my office represents the, um, the complainant, or they can elect and go to the Department of Justice, where the Department of Justice assigns an attorney in headquarters or in one of the US attorney's offices to handle uh, any additional investigation and filing a lawsuit in federal court. And we have a very active uh, practice in terms of handling charges of discrimination. I will say, however, that under the Fair Housing Act, We actually receive very few complaints of discrimination from individuals who are blind or have low vision. Uh, The most common type of complaint we receive from all persons with disabilities relates to service animals or assistance animals for people who have untrained animals that assist them. Uh, That's the number one type of complaint, a denial of reasonable accommodation complaint that we receive under the Fair Housing Act. But we see very, very few uh, housing-related complaints from people who are blind or have low vision. Billy, you want to pick up for section five hundred four in the ADA?
13: Yeah. So um, I'm trying. I was listening very intently to you, Janine, and uh, lost the thread of the question. I think it was about enforcement process.
2: How do you folks file complaints regarding the commission?
13: Um, so, it's a very similar process um, as to what Janine was outlining under uh, Section 504 in the ADA. Um, HUD can uh, can open an investigation based on a complaint uh, from a member of the public regarding uh, disability discrimination and many other protected characteristics. Um, or it can engage in what's called a compliance review, where um, if it hears of um, a particular uh, um, action that is likely problematic, um, then it can um, undertake an investigation of that practice. Um, And uh, oftentimes the uh, investigations overlap significantly with the Fair Housing Act. There's a lot of overlap um, with our housing providers uh, certainly if it's a housing provider, it's, it's going to be covered by the Fair Housing Act. Um, but um, if it's not um, like we provide money to states and localities to, under things like our Community Development Block Grant program or a version that relates to disaster relief um, to, like I said, you know, support community assets uh, like schools and rec centers and streetscapes and that, that type of thing. Um, the investigation occurs, uh, FHO would con- collect information uh, from the parties to verify or, um, you know, determine if there's been a violation, which can include interviews, document requests, on-sites, um, possibly, you know, a third party conducting surveys. Um, and once that's complete, um, generally there's an effort to try to resolve the matter through voluntary compliance. Um, that the document I was reading from previously related to LA was a voluntary compliance agreement, or it's essentially a settlement agreement um, to resolve issues. Um, if uh, settlement uh, is not a good idea or cannot be attained, um, HUD can issue what's called a letter of findings, which de- details the um, the facts and the legal violations and the remedies required to fix those problems. Um, if the the matter cannot be settled after so, you know making findings, um, there are a couple of things that that HUD could do. One, it could take the matter before an administrative law judge um, and seek to affect the funding to the particular recipient if it's a recipient of federal funds. Um, and we did that a couple of years ago. Um, that or it can refer the matter to the Department of Justice. Um, Uh, similar to what Janine was mentioning, although it's at HUD's discretion, um, as she was mentioning with the Fair Housing Act. um, The FIPS don't, um, are focused on the Fair Housing Act and not on um, Section 504 and ADA violations. Those come directly to HUD. But like I said, there's often overlap in those uh, enforcement under those laws.
5: And some of the FIP organizations that we deal with, for example, one of the most active on disability issues is Access Living in Chicago. They will frequently handle the 504 or the ADA complaint, as well as the Fair Housing Act complaint. And one of the things that's interesting about the Fair Housing Act is there's a lot of case law on the topic of testing. And so I know that um, from time to time, blind individuals will wonder if they're being denied rental housing because of their disability. And there is the ability under the Fair Housing Act through these Fair Housing Initiative Program FIP agencies for them to conduct testing. If they believe it's a a worthwhile use of resources, we fund them and they can go out and test a, a housing provider to determine if someone with a certain protected characteristic is being denied housing because of that. So for instance, um, there has been testing in the context of uh, blind people who use guide dogs in the past that has identified uh, discrimination because the person used a guide dog.
2: All right, great, thank you both. Um, Do we have any questions in the audience? You can take one or two. Any questions? We do. All right, Deb. Do you want? Right. Is there um, yeah. Go ahead. Your first hand is Casey. All right,
14: Casey. Okay. My maybe question. You, you. My question is a little different. I live in a, and I wonder what H. How HUD is doing about this, and that's online property management. Where I live um, in the condo association, and there's another one not too far from me where another blind person lives. And we both have sighted spouses now. But in my case, everything is online. It's not accessible. Uh, You can, some of the headings and stuff on the documents they send me are accessible, but to fill out anything on their website to make a request is impossible. These are this is an online property management. So what is HUD doing to look into maybe certifying these companies so that that they are compliant when they are actually property management online as opposed to a personal company.
5: So let me ask um, one of the questions that we would need to know in order to respond is whether it is a HUD funded type of housing. So let me tell you from the private housing perspective, what a person would be able to do is to seek a reasonable accommodation. And a reasonable accommodation would involve a discussion between HUD and the housing provider where we would explain that they can either have a process where they accommodate everyone by providing accessible forms that the person does not have to complete on the website or they make their website accessible. That's probably how we would handle it under the Fair Housing Act framework because there are no accessibility requirements under the Fair Housing Act relating to property management. So it would be a reasonable accommodation process. Billy?
13: Yeah, and um, to Janine's point, if it's a section 504, Covered uh, entity. So, um, if there's some HUD funds that um, are received by the organization that you're talking about, it's probably unlikely um, based on the where HUD funding goes, but possible. Um, but if there were, um, in addition to reasonable accommodations, similar analysis that Janine just laid out under the Fair Housing Act. There would be the obligation to take appropriate steps to ensure effective communication. As we all know, that's wildly not met, um, and you know, electronic information is being put out all over the place that is inaccessible. And um, but you know, certainly there is a mechanism. The one thing I would say, you know, this isn't really our wheelhouse. Um, it's it's more the DOJ's or um, private individuals can pursue. Title 3 of the ADA may apply in a situation like that that has a very similar um, set of requirements for uh, ensuring effective communication. Um, a lot of, um, it's become clear over the past, you know, couple of decades that certainly where there's a nexus to some kind of facility, that um, a web only presence um, would have coverage under Title III of the ADA. I've always viewed it as broader, but um, some some courts have not. And um, so in a situation like that, there may be some um, mechanism under Title III to cause uh, either Unfortunately, they the DOJ ranks call it a reasonable modification, not to confuse everything, but it's essentially a reasonable accommodation under Title III or to uh, make things accessible um, on the website itself.
5: And when Billy and I were both at the Department of Justice, we did um, use the leverage of the ADA to require a number of entities to provide accessible websites. Um, and we're looking forward to DOJ doing more in that area going in the future.
2: All right, I think we're, I think we're out of time. Um, so Janine, Warden, Billy Lynch, thank you. And thanks, Claire, for being co-host.
0: Thank you so much, Swatha. And thank you again to our, our presenters. This was great.
5: Thanks, our pleasure. And uh, we'd love to speak to you further in the future if you find it helpful.
2: Yes, we will post the links and on the document with Jean ended of the FHIPs and the fair housing, you offer so. Sure. Have a great day. Thank you. you Thank you. you.
5: Thanks,
2: Claire. Thanks, Latha.
1: All right, I think it's our there time. You
12: go. I was going to yeah. say, I think, I think it's time for Cindy.
1: Yeah. Hi, Lucy. Yes, Lucy. (laughs)
15: Thanks, (laughs) Rick. It's the
1: Cindy, Cindy, Lou connection. That's right. Yeah.
15: No, no, absolutely. (laughs) Cindy,
1: Cindy,
12: and Lucy. Lucy and Cindy. You know.
1: There you (laughs) go.
12: All one and the same. You guys are Siamese twins, aren't you? (laughs) Are you not?
1: Well, we're both in Michigan, anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah so well welcome back everybody it is the final connection show of this virtual leadership conference we are so glad to have you with us and uh if our host is able to see a uh, dan dylan will likely be in he's audio. here okay All perfect right. so uh dan we're gonna have utah is donna with us too
14: oh well, hi cindy I'm, and hi lucy I, i'm and, here all right. all right. Yeah, we're going to have
1: you. Dan talk you a little see, bit and then we'll go to you Donna. Okay. So and I'm a all right.
14: and By the way, uh, you yes. you mentioned both of you uh, reside in Michigan. I'm originally from Michigan, so Really? I was yeah. born and raised in Kalamazoo. I, I remember you not, told me that when I, I met you.
1: I know that, Dan. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes.
14: Yep. So, all right,
1: you are here to talk about the Angel program. So uh, let's hear about it because we don't have a whole lot of time.
14: No, I'll 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 be brief. Um, the ACB Angel Program was probably uh, started in uh, I think in 2014. We wanted to be able to uh, keep our keep members' memory alive. We want to recognize people for their service to the American Council of the Blind. We came up with the ANGEL program, and uh, to, to, to get down to the, the, the facts, um, we, we asked that uh, people that, re, that sponsor an ACB ANGEL uh, contribute $500 to the American Council of the Blind. They can do this as individuals, uh, as an affiliate, some, in some cases, affiliates have gone in together to, to come up with the $500 and <clears throat> probably need to contact Nancy Becker in the Minnesota office regarding the, um, the money. And then uh, in return, um, we ask that, uh, that the people that are sponsoring an angel uh, provide us with a, a photograph of, of the recipient and a bio about the recipient. And they get their own uh, web page. And, um, and, we and return, uh, ACB provides them with a plaque that's uh, pretty good size, four inches by 12 inches. And along the top of that plaque uh, in raised lettering, is the name of the recipient and the the date that they passed. And along the bottom of the plaque is all that information in braille. And we put that plaque on what we call the ACB angel wall. That is, uh, We we display that in the exhibit hall at our national convention. And uh, it's like a three-sided wall. Uh, at this time, we're, we're getting short on space, so we're going to have to come up with ways to continue to recognize all these angels. It's been a, a very successful fundraiser for ACB, but more important than that, we're able to recognize people that that have contributed a lot uh, in the success of the American Council of the Blind. And we have a, a number of people that, that are not even members, but they, but they were, they were uh, uh, introduced as uh, you know, uh, ACB angels. Um, that pretty much is it, uh, Cindy and Lucy. Um,
1: so we're not, we're not in any hurry for people to make that angel wall. But no. <laughs> if, no. If that's, somebody that, does. That,
14: that's, that, it's a, it's a bittersweet uh, it uh, is, yeah. situation because. We don't want people to pass on, um, but if they do, then it's a great program to be able to remember these people.
4: It is, and and it, and
14: it has been a well, it's okay. been a successful fundraiser. But more important than that is to be able to to recognize these people.
1: Yeah, and anyone could learn about these folks um, by going to the website and going, finding the, the angels page, and they're all up there. And so. Uh, you could read about some of these people that oh, were just really right. involved in our organization. And many, many people hear about Brenda. And many oh, yeah. people don't know about her. Well, but- yes, and, and
14: along with the, 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 uh, the, the ACB Angel wall uh, that'll be uh, uh, exhibited in the exhibit hall, we have uh, large print and Braille bios of all the people that have become yes. an ACB angel. Yes. And that's that's very popular, you know. At the, I love in, it. In the exhibit yeah. hall. Yeah. Sure. It's very
1: humbling. It's very humbling yeah. to read those bios. And uh, anyway, thank you, Dan. Appreciate You're you welcome. Appreciate you being here. And sorry, I'm not going to see you this weekend, but we'll see you in Schomburg.
14: Yay. We so. hope so. We hope so. <laughs> well, By I you know lady. somebody
1: else. Oh, go on! You
14: ladies have a great evening, okay? Oh, well, yeah. Well, you too, and Dan. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you, you.
1: Well, I know somebody else that'll be in in uh, Schaumburg with her with her Tenny Runners on.
16: <laughs> hey, Donna,
1: you want to talk to us about the walk?
16: Oh, I can do that. <laughs> All right. So uh, we are gearing up for the 2023 ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Uh, this is the 15th year. Man, that's wow. what I believe. I remember that first one. Woo. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, how the ACB walk works. Uh, we have a theme which was voted or was selected by an ACB member, uh, ironically from West Virginia. But anyway, that that's okay. <laughs> um, so our theme this year is stepping out with ACB. And so that's what we're hoping people will do, step out with ACB by registering for the ACB Brenda Diller Memorial Walk. And there will be a website. In fact, um, I think it is being worked on as, as I sit here. Uh, oh, cool. Since I just got a phone call a little bit ago <laughs> about uh, anyway, um, so very soon, watch your email and watch the um, daily schedule. Cindy will put it on there, uh, the website to go register. So when you go register, it's $25 to register. And you don't even have to be going to the convention in Schomburg. Uh, we hope you can, but. It, You still can register for the walk, even if you're unable to go to the convention. Uh, So when you register and pay your $25, you can either uh, register uh, as an individual or you can register as a team member, or you can even uh, become a team captain. Affiliates and committees, uh, both stated and special interest affiliates, and any committee, especially committees that have budgets, um, can create teams and are encouraged to create teams because what happens then is all the, the monies that you raise up to 50% of that can come back to your affiliate. So um, it's kind of a good fundraiser for many of our state, well, and especially special interest affiliates. It's a little hard for special interest affiliates to have fundraisers. Uh, so anyway, um, be watching for your email. And what will happen is when we get to Schaumburg on July 1st, and this is going to be really neat. Last year's first time we did it this way, but uh, the walk will actually take place uh, around six o'clock PM on Saturday, July 1st. And the walk will end as a filing into general session. Uh, there will be a walk song uh, as there has been the last, oh, I don't know, six years or however many years. Um, And that'll play as we walk into general session. And that was really neat last year. And we're going to do that again this year. Uh, Also, if you are in person, you will have the opportunity to receive a nice bag that has the walk theme and uh, shows the walk sponsors uh, and, it's also a wonderful bag to carry around the exhibit hall to fill with yeah. many <laughs> goodies. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all I have, Cindy.
1: Well, and don't forget all the different things you're doing to encourage. Oh, people I forgot. To, yeah.
16: <laughs> like yeah. That, so, right? you know, I don't know if anybody knows, but ACB is 62 this year, almost as old as me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but. Uh, we, we're, the walk committee, has has kind of decided to use 62 as a, a number for various opportunities for people to uh, win some gift cards. Um, so, first of all, the, the probably the most important part of it is the uh, fundraising goal is to raise at least 62 thousand dollars for ACB and its affiliates, but If you are the lucky 62nd person who signs up for the walk and yes, we, we have way more than 62 people. We have the last several years, but if you happen to be that lucky 62nd person, you will receive a $25 gift card. And we're, and Uh,
1: we're going to have to make this part really quick. So there's other (laughs) ways. Then the the
16: first team who raises $6,200 will receive a, Prize of some sort, probably a gift card or of something, and then the last opportunity to win is if you are the first person to get sixty-two individual donations.
1: Wow! Uh, All right, (laughs) awesome. Yeah, thank you. Go sign up as soon as that's available. We will post it in the community email for sure. It'll be in dots and dashes, all that stuff. Thank you, Donna, so much. Lucy, let's let's hear what's coming up to the end of today we have one hour left yep what's happening
17: okay we've got acb uh excuse me accessible voting and uh that's going to be a panel panel headed by karen campbell of the illinois council of the blind and then at 555 We have a wrap up by President Dan and that's the end of the day. Oh
1: my gosh, can you believe it? It's come to an end. This is just wild, isn't it? Yes. It's it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Lucy, for being here with me.
17: Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure.
1: (laughs) I've loved it too. (laughs) So don't forget to check out the mini mall and if you're going to be at the rally and at the leadership conference in person this coming weekend, There will be some of those products from the mini mall in the back of the general session room. So you could check some of that out yourself and purchase things right there. Johnny on the spot, acbminimall.org is the website or you can call 612-332-3242. If you need assistance. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Get that, get your uh, ACB, uh, garb and show ACB off everywhere sure. you go, and thanks everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the conference. We're going to turn this back over, I think, maybe to Clark.
9: That's yeah. right, Cindy. Hey, right.
1: hey. Hi, hi, Clark. I'll see you soon.
9: Thank <laughs> you, <laughs> and Lucy, both so much for that. these fabulous. You're welcome. <laughs> shows.
1: All right, um, thank you.
9: And I'd like thank to you. take a moment of host or a moderator privilege here because hopefully many of you did not even notice that the ACB national office was having some technical difficulties today. And for nearly an hour, we actually had a fire alarm going off in our building. Uh, But several of our core values are flexibility and collaboration. Uh, So a big shout out again to Cindy and Lucy, the ACB media team, as well as our uh, committee chairs, board members, hosts, and panelists who uh, remained flexible and stepped in to lead panels uh, when Swatha and I were unavailable. So again, thank, thank you all for making today a success and um, being here to share share this experience and this information with ACB and our members. So last but not least up for today, as Lucy mentioned, we have a panel on remote accessible voting. This will actually be in two parts. So first we have some of the uh, folks from ACB affiliates who are very active in their state affiliates on remote accessible voting. And then we'll hear from one of our sponsors, uh, Enhanced Voting, as well as one of their partners, Access Ready, about the work they are doing to make remote and absentee voting more accessible for people with disabilities. So at this point, I'd like to welcome our guests from ACB of Indiana the Illinois Council of the Blind, as well as from ACB of New York. So we'll just go down the list here. Uh, From ACB of Indiana, we have Deanne Hart. Deanne, how are you doing today?
18: I'm doing great and uh, I'm pleased to be here and I hope the weather is as nice there as it is here.
9: (laughs) Thank you. And next from the Illinois Council of the Blind, we have Karen Campbell. Karen, good afternoon.
17: Good afternoon, Clark and everybody. Um, glad to be here, and I hope the weather is nice where you are.
9: <laughs> and I hope the nice weather holds for the currency rally here in D.C. on Friday, March 10th.
17: You and uh, me both, because I'm not sure whether it's, whether <laughs> it's going to from what I've been hearing on WTOP.
9: All right. And then from ACB of New York, we actually have uh, two individuals because the well, they've had a change in their advocacy chair and both bring expertise in the various advocacy tools they've used to increase access for remote accessible voting. So first, Ian Foley, good afternoon. Hi, Clark. How are you? Doing well. And then Martin, uh, Martin, excuse me, it's Martin Cahill, correct? Martin, do we have you on audio?
2: I just sent him an asked to unmute.
9: Aha. So Martin, once you uh, get that pop-up, if you could please unmute and we will bring you into the conversation. I'm here, Clark. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. No worries. Fabulous. Uh, So (laughs) uh, again, a a bit of moderator privilege. Um, that I know we've got an outline here. I might switch it up just a little bit, Um, but just to to kick us off with some of the the various advocacy tools that your affiliates have used to increase access um, to voting. And Deanne, uh, this is something that ACB of Indiana has been working on for several years. Do you mind sharing with folks um, what was available to you if you wanted accessible access to remote voting in Indiana, uh, say, two or three years ago?
18: Um, up until 2019, um, when we started this conversation, um, if you were a person with a visual disability or any other disability, mainly your homebound and your those that were sick, Um, were able to use the traveling board, which meant somebody, usually two people would come to your home, one from each party, and would allow you to cast your ballot by telling them who you wanted to vote for. Um, I actually personally have never used that option, but um, those who did felt it was very... um, Exposing, number one, they exposed themselves. They exposed their house um, to people that they didn't even know, and so it was uncomfortable to do it though.
9: And and certainly not a private nor independent vote. No, no,
18: not at all.
9: So, uh, what advocacy tool did ACB of Indiana uh, use, or what advocacy method did you pursue? to increase access to remote voting?
18: We began talking to to people within the state, um, mainly other blindness organizations, individuals, about their experience with voting. And we found that using the traveling board is not acceptable any longer, and that people wanted a more private option. Beyond that, we also started talking to other people who had experience with voting laws, uh, which led us to talking to people outside of our state as well as people within our state. Um, We found that the conversations um, were very enlightening in that we found that we were not the only one experiencing the difficulties that uh, were being shared with us in voting. Also, we found that there were some leaders in the process that we could um, learn from. And, um, and so through connections, not only in-state but out-of-state, uh, we started looking at the options we had, which was legislative or going through and doing a lawsuit. Um, when we pursued the loss, uh, the legislation, we found that not everybody wanted it for the same reason we wanted it. Not everybody wanted to walk the same path we wanted to walk. Um, such as we talked to uh, Indiana Vote by Mail, they wanted to, they wanted it to so that everybody could vote from their home computers or their computers not have to go to the polling places. Whereas what we were looking for is the an option that somebody could use if for some reason they couldn't go to the polling. And um, then we started working with our local affiliate of the national, uh, national industries for the blind. And we working with their lobbyists, that they only wanted to go for part of our dream, not all of our dream, of being accessible and absentee securely and independently and privately. Um, we went through the the statute here in the state and outlined what needed to be changed in it that would accomplish goals. And in our, our conversation, we were, when we were talking to them, we found that maybe this wasn't the way to go because they were willing to go to the legislator for us with our issues, but maybe we weren't gonna get all of it, all of what we wanted from it. So then we started talking to our friends in state and out of state and across the country, people that I had known for two decades later, um, that I had met up with while I was working on the Help Americans Vote Act or I had been working with when working with the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, had actually been to a room with one of the people I talked to um, and, and that. So there's many ways you can let you can advocate that you can um, pull in and collaborate from meeting people and learning from them. And so after talking to them and then also talking to Clark, um, we decided that maybe we needed to look at a lawsuit. And then the conversations began um, with the with Indiana Disability Rights um, and disability rights advocates. And uh, that is how our lawsuit came.
9: Thanks, Deanne, and I'll have you pause there um, to bring in Ian Foley from ACB of New York to the conversation now. So Ian, uh, yes. New, New York has also taken, uh, say a winding path, to expand access to remote accessible voting Uh, and that that path would you tell us how that how ACB of New York got started
12: along that path Uh, very similarly to Indiana honestly Um, (laughs) a lot of the same players ironically Um, you know we in 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 2019 you know New York State had some of the highest COVID rates in the country and you know, the governor and you know the the state officials were basically saying stay home and vote. You know, we don't want you outside, we don't want you in the polls. And so the entire state had to find a way to vote absentee. And of course, we were among that mix trying to figure out how do we do it with access, privacy, and independence. Well, one out of three ain't bad, as Meatloaf said. <laughs> um, you know, it just didn't, you know, it wasn't gonna happen. Um, so, you know, this, as they announced this, we were a couple months from the, um, you know, from the first primary election, actually from the 2020 election, and it was a, honestly, it was kind of a dismal failure across New York State. Um, many pockets of the state, uh, the, the you know, the, the county that the capital resides in, in Albany, um, you know, along with several other, especially the rural counties, had a lot of difficulty providing an accessible ballot that people could complete online, print and mail back in. And of course, there were issues, you know, beyond that with the technicalities of, okay, what's an acceptable ballot? Does it have to be eight and a half by 11? Does it have to be eight and a half by 14? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it really became very muddled. And you know, every county across New York State was hiring somebody different or contracting with someone different to create these quote accessible ballots. You know, so there wasn't one source, one vendor that we could work with that says, "Hey, we know how to do this." You know, New York City, on the other hand, uh, I'm from Buffalo, so I'm you know, I'm in the I'm in the upstate area, um, but New York City, downstate, did it right. They uh, they contracted with Democracy Live and you know, everybody I spoke to in New York City had an amazing experience marking their ballots. They just had the issue sometimes printing it and mailing it back in. So, you know, knowing that we had another election coming up, um, you know, primary election in August of 2020. Um, we just we had no choice but to, to say, you know, the legislative process isn't working. And, you know, we were we were asking for several years. Um, you know, I've, I've been involved in ACB legislative issues with New York State State since 2017, and in all those years, the governor and the state legislator their legislature just was not interested in creating an accessible, especially in a, an accessible electronic ballot return system, much less you know just a universal uh, accessible ballot for us to use, you know, as absentee voters. So ultimately um we were contacted by I believe you and eve hill from the n f b of new york um and we ended up joining this lawsuit both as a c b n y but also we had some individual members of a c b of New York who joined as uh as individual plaintiffs um along with disability rights New York and disability rights advocates of course and uh, so that's kind of how it all began,
9: yeah. Uh, thank you, Ian uh, Martin. I'm going to ask you to hold on a little bit, and I want to bring uh, to Karen Campbell into the conversation. So, Karen, uh, both New York and Indiana ultimately pursued litigation or legal advocacy, but the Illinois Council of the Blind, you all are looking at a legislative fix for remote accessible voting. Correct?
17: Yes, we are. Um... And how?
9: How is that process going in Illinois?
17: Going well so far, but let me back up and give a little history. In 2020, as we all know, the pandemic uh, hit. Who could have predicted that? And that meant that, uh, you know, people weren't going out and that. So we had to have a way to vote. And at that point, absentee voting was not accessible. It was um, our colleagues at the uh, NFB of Illinois had started a dialogue and got managed to get emergency legislation to cover the 2020 election. Um, so that people could vote uh, accessibly by mail um if they wanted to you had to you could get the ballot delivered electronically and it, but then you had to print it out and send it back in it was not marketed very well in 2020 so not a lot of people used it but it it was also last minute too so it it came it came in very very close to uh the election, the time that you would uh, want be turning around, vote by mail, and that. So after that, um, we we wanted to pursue a legislative uh, fix for this, and we were told that uh, that might be possible. Well, twenty twenty one, we tried. Um, we couldn't. Didn't manage to get it, but by the end of the year, the state Board of election held a couple of hearings, one in Chicago and one in springfield um, to gather input on this on this issue and come twenty twenty two we were able to get legislation introduced into the Senate and the House to get um, electronic delivery. We did not go, go for it all at once because we were told that would probably be too much. But um, long story short, we were able to get sponsors in both the Senate and the House, and we got the bill passed for electronic uh, delivery, and then for the primary last June, under an emergency procurement, we state contracted with Democracy Live for the ballot in Cook, Cook County, which is our largest county, and Chicago use their own vendor, which they could do, which election jurisdiction could do if they wanted to. Um, But they had to either do that or use the uh, vendor through the State Board of Elections. Um, and And then election for last fall, also that contract went to Democracy Live!, and um, I've used I've used it both for the primary and for for uh, the last fall's election. It was real easy to mark the ballot and that I could vote privately and independently. I knew that the equipment was going to work. The headphone volume was going to be what I needed. And now this year, we are working to get electronic return, so that we don't have to print it out and send it back in.
9: And thank you, Karen. I'll ask you to pause there. I yeah, um, was
17: going to thank you.
9: Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Illinois currently has electronic ballot delivery and marking, but it the ballot needs to be printed out and mailed back in. Ian, it sounds like that's the current state in New York as well. You can receive your ballot electronically. You can complete it electronically, but then you have to mail it back in, correct?
12: That's correct. And we had our state board of elections after... In July of uh July of last year, we or yeah, we had to uh basically sue the board of elections or actually bring them back to court uh mm-hmm. be and you know because they failed to comply with the you know with the the judge's order uh with our settlement agreement. So the judge basically said find a solution, you know, or you're gonna face contempt to the board of elections. And uh the board of elections pretty quickly contracted with uh enhanced voting. And I'll tell you the the product was was really good uh, from a, you know, from an absentee, a remote absentee ballot that you still had to print and mail. The, the access aspect of it was phenomenal, you know, across the state. So kudos.
9: Great. And Martin, this is where you come into the conversation as uh, Ian has, I'll say, turned out and you've come on board as the advocacy chair for ACB of New York. How is ACB of New York continuing
15: to advocate for uh,
9: greater access for remote accessible
15: voting? All right, uh, thanks, Clark, um, and. You know, I, I I've come into a, into a good committee. Uh, our, our legislative committee is, is very experienced, um, uh, very knowledgeable. Uh, thanks to Ian, um, his his past leadership uh, alongside his co-chair uh, Megan Parker, they, they did a, a great job, and the team were great. You know, I I, I see this really as a, as a team effort for everybody. Um, so we we do have the. Uh, accessible ballot right um so the the next piece that we want is is to be able to to return it online obviously closes that 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 loop um so the way i kind of i i've looked at it and, and how we've been moving forward with it is um you know, the, the, pick, a, pick a destination, like it's like a road a map and a destination and the destination being uh, get the, the bill signed into law. So if you keep that always as, as the target, uh, that's where we, where we need to get. So what, what do we need to get there and, and, and map out that process? Um, so, so far, uh, you know, obviously the first step is to get a, a bill draft, um, get it sponsored and get it introduced right so that that's a sounds very easy but it's it's a lengthy process there's a lot of lot of um, pushing uh, and, and calls and zoom calls so we, we've been working uh, in a coalition um, so ACB uh, NFB Tusk philanthropies secure family initiatives uh, New York vision rehab associates there there's there's a number of, of entities in this coalition all with great experience to help us get through this um you know i've certainly learned a lot from a lot of these these, these people with a great experience in it so we we pushed hard with the in, in in both the assembly and the senate and we got that bill uh introduced just last week so we're, we're very very pleased so that's a big step on the road for us to get going And um, that that allows us the electronic ballot return um it was introduced last Thursday and we're hoping to have bill numbers sometime this week any day this week maybe next week uh but that's just the first lift right so now this the second lift uh, we've already started uh in trying to schedule some meetings uh, we we want to do a, a number of different campaigns like uh, First of all, we've got to get media awareness um, and some of the the folks at at Tusk Philanthropies and and Secure Family Initiatives, they've they've done some op-ed pieces regarding this, because we need to get general public awareness of this. It's not just for us, it's for military families and everybody with, with, with a disability to use this. Right? So, so we need all shoulders to the wheel here. So we, we want, from our side, we need to make sure that there's campaigns going on of phone calls, uh, which our members can do, uh, emails, which our members can do zoom meetings which is now very acceptable in in all in all manners of of effort we can we can do that zoom meetings but we also want to do uh, two other pieces of in-person we want to get to some of our representatives at their local office get members of acb new york get get the the local members in their districts into their office uh, so they're seeing us, I think it's very important that we're visible to them. Um, I think it's very important that we share our experience with, with them personally of uh, a lot of promises that are that are made of, of uh, accessible uh, ballot marking devices at all locations when we go to vote, only to find out they're not turned on, they're not plugged in, they're not there at all, nobody knows how to get it started. Uh, that's the experience. You know we, we we've heard a lot of, of of great promises, but that's our experience. Sure. Uh, we need to get that message across to them. Um, and, and, and in a, in a good way, this is these are not these, we're not trying to do a hard sell here. We're trying to bring a human side to it so that they they see what what's happening. Um, so so we need to to leverage to uh, some of our partners in the coalition to their IT experience also. Um, if we're going to get our members to to do these campaigns and join in with us in these email campaigns and phone calls, we've got to make it as easy as possible for those who may struggle with some technology and that. Just make it as easy as possible for them to take part in it. So we we want to encourage everybody, not just the committee members. uh, We want to encourage everybody to, to get involved in it. But we also have a day that we plan, it would probably be in mid-April where we will um, all show up uh, in numbers at the Capitol um, in Albany. And uh, we will have meetings scheduled with as many people as we can fit in and, and walk around those halls and, and introduce ourselves to everybody. Let all the representatives in there see us walking around with our canes, with our dogs, Uh, showing up and conducting business the same way they are. Um, And just really like for those who've already supported it and for supported us in the past, you know, thank them and uh, build on those relationships so they can help us get this through and and other bills.
9: That's great. Thanks, Martin. So Deanne, you, you hear from, you hear from Illinois and Indiana that they've, uh, been able to successfully advocate for from voting by mail with a paper ballot, which is inherently inaccessible, to being able to receive and mark their ballot accessibly, but then still still deal with printing out the ballot and returning a paper ballot. Um, in Indiana, you all uh, had a, a great victory announced this year. You're now able to, or will be in the upcoming primary, to receive your ballot electronically, mark it, and return it electronically. How does that make yes, you all we, feel in Indiana?
18: We are we are looking forward to that greatly. Um, you know, there's we still have on the road um, that we're still working on, and in, in that becoming coming to fruition, uh, but. I, I think overall, everyone will be satisfied with what we get in um, that Democracy Live. We had tried out um, our chapter and our affiliates had tried out many years ago, the opportunity to back off one of the other states who was looking into it. Um, they sent out a link, they offered us an opportunity to try it. And at that point in time, everyone said, can't wait till this comes to Indiana. Um, well, now we can say it has. Um, I didn't say in my first uh, bit of conversation here, we did have to overcome um, some goals as far as we did have legislation back in 2014 that required that people who were visually impaired had to have somebody um, witness their signature on their ballots. Um, and that this resolves that issue. We also were included in the language that went into the Military and overseas um, voting act that was adopted here in the state of Indiana, but, but the mechanism for people who were visually impaired to be able to do it was not acknowledged. And that and that is one. Those are two things that the suit has helped us overcome. Um, is by by being able to have a ballot that we can get electronically and we can return electronically, we overcome those, the obstacles that had been left behind.
9: Deanne, one more question for you. What was, um, if you received any pushback or opposition to electronic ballot delivery, marking and return, what was some of the main opposition you heard or faced in Indiana?
18: I wouldn't say we've re- much opposition. I did, do know we have had some sayers within the blindness community saying, well, they'll never change the law and make it accessible to us. Mm-hmm. And what we're running into right now is we are depending on the outcomes of our lawsuit for there some administrative law changes.
9: Yeah, so some some reluctance due to existing laws that were on the books.
18: Mhm. hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if those don't change, we don't get.
9: Yeah. Uh, Karen, in, in Illinois, um, what sort of pushback or opposition have you all encountered as you've been pursuing remote accessible voting?
17: Um, I think the biggest one that we're, we're on guard for is the electronic return because And we're addressing that. You know, people who say, oh, it's not secure. We're we're framing this as an accessibility issue, as an access Mm -hmm. issue. Um, And I should say we do have a Senate bill, and we are working in a coalition with the NFBI and our largest um, independent living center along with it. Along with a an Illinois Good Government organization, um, and they are very supportive of us, so we're working in coalition to get this done. And we just had a meeting with our State Board of Election staff; they are supportive of this. We'll see what the actual board thinks, but they are supportive of this. But they have told us that we should include UOCAVA voters because if we don't we they don't want to get an equal protection issue but we did not want to speak for them just as we would not want them to speak for us
9: thanks Karen and then uh Ian followed by Martin so to Ian as you've pursued litigation, and then, Martin, as you're going down the path of legislation, uh, have you encountered any obstacles or any pushback for pursuing uh, accessible ballot delivery marking and return?
12: This is Ian. I guess I'll start with, you know, historically, like Indiana, you know, New York has basically, the legislature has said, you know, electronic ballot return will never happen. You know, we've had many advocates from other organizations say, don't even try. It's not going to happen. But mm-hmm. it's interesting because one of the things that, you know, by collaborating with some of these other organizations, particularly the, the military families, they have resources that we haven't had before. Mm-hmm. And when you join with these guys, they've got IT people coming in <laughs> with FBI level security, talking about the ballot security, when we approach um, a hearing coming soon in the New York State legislature. That should be a groundbreaking experience that basically melts that, you know, that old conclusion away, that false conclusion away, because it can be secure. Yeah.
9: Martin, in addition to security, any other uh, opposition or pushback? related to adding a, an additional means of voting?
15: Um, not, not as of yet. I mean, you know, we are very much aware of the the, the security uh, probability coming our direction. It hasn't raised the head yet. Uh, again, the bill hasn't even been assigned numbers yet. But, um, you know, I mean, as, as we, we know, it's happened in, in other states. But th- there are 13 states that currently have um, electronic ballot return. So, uh, Ian is correct in saying that the the secure family uh, uh, bring bring a wealth of knowledge in, in that area as well, as well as as others uh, with us to help us stave that off. But no, the 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 only other issue that we we had was uh, just. Just trying to get everybody's attention to get a bill uh, introduced in the first place, because there's a lot of competing um, projects on on the representatives' plate right now. You know, the budget time and all that kind of stuff. So it was really just a matter of of getting getting their attention and get them to to move forward with this um, and identifying who who the who the the, the lead sponsors were going to be. Uh, but we we've got past that hurdle. Uh, again, as I said, it's just a, it was a slow process, a lot of calls. Um, mm-hmm. But from the, the Zoom meetings, Clark, to be honest, uh, I I've been having a good feeling from them, um, and the election board chair was 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 quite receptive in conversation too. So. Well, great. And
9: uh, I'll ask you all to to stick around for Q&A at the end here. At this point, I'd like to introduce our other guests. So we are also joined by Doug Town, the chair of Access Ready, who is also a Florida Council of the Blind member, as well as Aaron Wilson, the CEO of Enhanced Voting. So Doug and Aaron, welcome.
19: Thank you. Thank you, Clark.
9: And Doug, would you mind sharing a little bit about the advocacy work that Access Ready does?
19: Sure. And it's a real pleasure to be with you all today. Access Ready uh, is a national advocacy organization that works specifically on accessible information and communications technology issues. We were formed about five years ago to work only on these issues. So we work at the national level, uh, have the pleasure of working with Clark through CCD. Uh, and and other organizations. And we advocate uh, both with the federal government, but also with state uh, and local governments as well, uh, as well as businesses. But we also advocate with the providers of technology. And we do that by advocacy. And also we do some consulting with those organizations uh, to help them understand why things need to be accessible and how best uh, to make those things accessible. So we also provide some testing and and those kinds of things. Myself personally, I've been involved in accessible voting since December of 2000, when I realized (laughs) that because of the Florida election, there was an opportunity to bring about accessible voting. And of course, there were a lot of people involved back then, uh, Jim Dixon and others, Uh, in bringing about uh, the Help America Vote Act and the standards for accessible voting machines. Uh, I was involved in the development of the Automark, which a lot of you probably know uh, was one of the first ballot marking devices uh, and other accessible voting systems. And we work uh, uh, with other parts of the the election system as well, including poll books and of course, for the last year, we've been working uh, with enhanced voting uh, on how to uh, expand access to voting—that uh, that what you all have been talking about—but
9: also for groups that are currently
19: not yet served uh, by accessible voting. So that's that's access ready in a nutshell.
9: Thank you, and Aaron, we've we've already heard a little bit from. Uh, it sounds, sounds like the successful deployment of enhanced voting it, that Ian shared uh, from the ACB of New York. But for those who are not familiar with enhanced voting, uh, for those individuals that have not experienced the system in their state, will you please share a little bit about enhanced voting?
20: Yeah, happy to do that. Thank you, Clark, for having uh, having us this afternoon. And thank you all for, for uh, being a part of this. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Certainly um, looking forward to to sharing my thoughts with you all and then taking some questions. Uh, I founded Enhanced Voting in 2013. Uh, I've actually been involved in election technology since 2006. Um, Enhanced Voting was started uh, providing accessible uh, online ballot marking in 2018. The first state that we began working in was Ohio at that time. Uh, Since then, uh, the system that we call Enhanced Ballot has been used in Florida, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, New Hampshire, New Jersey, uh, New York, as was mentioned, uh, and Virginia. Uh, Recently um, we also uh, won the contract for the state of Utah as well. We have worked in a couple of states on a temporary basis, particularly through the pandemic. uh, when those laws were changed temporarily, or, or those off, those um, orders were were given temporarily, um, but we've really we've really enjoyed this part of our uh, overall. We have a couple of different solutions, but uh, just personally, the accessible ballot uh, delivery, marking, and return uh, is one that uh, we really enjoy. Uh, the space we enjoy providing something that is uh, so fundamental to your to everyone's right uh, private and independent ballot marking and um, look forward to engaging with you all a little bit more
9: so Aaron uh, on in our previous conversation uh, we heard in Indiana and New York the issue of you know j- just current state regimes and state systems being uh, say, reluctant to change, right? We heard about from from Karen in Illinois, and again, in New York, the the issue or the specter of security uh, as reasons to not expand access to remote voting in an accessible manner for people with disabilities. Uh, What sort of barriers do, as a vendor, do you all hear or do you encounter when working with Election providers on remote accessible voting.
20: Yeah, I think um, you know. I think I break those down into you know four general categories. There's of course the legal barriers, which which are most of what you guys have discussed today, and certainly uh, you know I have some thoughts on the security argument that that I want to share. Um, but another one that was mentioned that doesn't get mentioned enough is education barriers, right? Voter awareness. Um, are the states or the local jurisdictions? Doing enough to make voters aware of this option, and as I tell our customers, you know it's not enough to make them aware that We need to provide them information on how to use it. Uh, we we often a lot of our customers take us up on the option to have a demo system available to their voters ahead of time, so the voters can feel comfortable with this option as an alternative to what they're used to, whether that's you know going into a polling location or, or taking a, some other option. So. Education barrier, I think, uh, is big. Uh, The technology barrier uh, for some voters, um, and that's something that we're obviously working to improve. And then, of course, there's the financial barrier um, in the budgets of local and state election officials, um, and how they, uh, how they, you know, choose to prioritize uh, what they're spending money on. You know, for us, it's there's really two of these barriers that we have control over um, more Mm -hmm. than the others as a as a technology company. Uh, The first of those barriers is is the technology itself. And we certainly do everything that we can to ensure that our technology works across the broadest spectrum of devices and access technology. Um, But for us, that's also meant expanding our offering into electronic return uh, and supporting um, ballot return uh, using using the person's computer without uh, printing the ballot. and then, second, second to that is the financial piece of that, um, and so that's what you know. As we approached you and, and want to talk about this a little bit, we're we're seeing that in this space that that pricing is just all over the place. Um, when we entered this space five years ago, I've seen uh, just a great disparity in terms of of what is being charged to state and local governments for this type of service. Uh, so what we're trying to do now, and, and one thing that we're announcing this month in, in a couple of different venues, um, is a is a fixed transparent price uh, of twenty four ninety nine, you know, for a local jurisdiction for the whole year. So uh, regardless of how many elections a jurisdiction has, regardless of how big that jurisdiction is, um, you know, we're setting a a fixed annual price that local jurisdictions can look to for uh, you know, and they know that's a reliable price. They don't have to approach us to get any sort of quote or go through any extensive process. So we hope that, that publishing that price, bringing some transparency around this process and the cost of, of providing these services will will help jurisdictions that don't currently provide an accessible absentee uh, option. Uh, we we'll hope we hope that that will encourage them and and take away one more barrier that that they face.
9: That's great, thank you, Aaron. And w- and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, price, or I, I'm sure as uh, state elected officials think about it, what's this going to cost, right? Um, as they work on their their budgets. But before we go deeper on that, just to circle back to the technology, so. Uh, Remote voting and certainly voting by means other than vote by mail with a paper ballot, that technology is not new, right? I mean, that, and I guess I'll start with Doug first, but uniformed military and overseas voters have been able to vote electronically for longer than people with disabilities. I believe it's now over 30 states allow UACABA voters to vote absentee via electronic ballot and now we're over 10 states that are allowing voters with disabilities to do the same so is is technology a barrier at this point or is it simply a, an education issue as aaron was mentioning
19: well um first of all technology accessible information and communications technology and making that technology accessible is—we like to say—no longer rocket science. <laughs> um, we've we've cracked the touch screen. We've we've uh, you know most of the necessary utilities to make technology accessible have already been invented. Now, as people invent new technologies, obviously, accessibility needs to be first and foremost, and that's one of the things we we advocate for. But making uh, products accessible uh, really isn't a stretch anymore. And I think that uh, this, this is very important when it comes to opening up accessible voting to disability groups that aren't currently served, like the deaf blind, for example. Um, we have been working with Aaron and talking with them uh, and looking at technologies that are already currently in the field that could be adapted to provide uh, accessible voting uh, for the deaf-blind community, which, uh, and, and of course, once, once we demonstrate that, and I, and I apologize, Clark, if I'm jumping ahead on you, but once we demonstrate that, then it's gonna be up to ACB and all the other blindness organizations and deaf, deafness organizations uh, to help uh, get that accepted uh, under law at the federal level and the state level uh, so that our, our friends who are in the deaf-blind community, you know, next after that is, is uh, voting for people with developmental disabilities who perhaps do not read. Uh, you know, we know technologically how to resolve these issues. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, but it will take advocacy. But to answer your question, it's not rocket science anymore, and there's no excuse for yeah. inaccessibility any longer.
9: So uh, Karen Campbell, in addition to being involved in the voting advocacy for the Illinois Council of the Blind, is also a co-chair of ACB's Sight and Sound Impaired Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen, if you are able to unmute. Yeah, is I vote- am
17: unmuted.
9: Is voting access something that you hear about a lot from either the Sassy committee or the deafblind community?
17: Um, I think it it is an issue. i I don't know can't say how much we've heard about it. Um, but I think it is an issue. Um, and, is,
9: and is that an issue for in-person voting as well as absentee voting?
17: Definitely for in-person because a lot of places you can't, for example, can't hook up a, your own braille display to that equipment and they won't, they don't, they're skittish about it for security reasons. Um, I would think for absentee, I can't speak to the solution that we use in Illinois. It works with a screen reader, so... I'm told that if it works with a screen reader, it should work with a braille display because screen readers power braille displays. So I don't know. This is a group that probably under is underrepresented among voters. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be education to change that.
19: Mark, if I can jump in for just a second, please give you a little bit of experience that I had. I was at the uh, National Association of the Deaf Convention uh, several years ago, um, talking with them about uh, accessible check-in at the polls, Uh, and I was um, buttonholed, we'll call it, surrounded by about 20 members of the DeafBlind community and their interpreters who all said, basically we know what you've done uh, when it comes to accessible voting and we see what you're doing when it comes to uh, accessible voting for the deaf, as far as like uh, instructions by ASL and, and so forth, which we were there demoing. And they basically said, what are you gonna do for us? Uh, and we had quite a conversation. And I said, if we find a solution, it will be up to you to advocate with Congress and your state legislators to allow it. Uh, and that was kind of the, the way we we resolved the discussion. But these advocates were very adamant that they wanted to vote independently. And they they were looking for us, they were looking for a solution. So uh, it was fortunate that a, a year or two later, uh, I met Aaron and we started talking about how that might uh, how that might be accomplished. And I, I don't want to get into the weeds on how it would be accomplished, but we're sure. Uh, pretty sure that, that, uh, that we can do that and we'll hopefully demo that in the next... Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm more concerned about the politics uh, and the advocacy side of, of making that happen than I am the technology side.
9: Well, and certainly within ECB, sure. we want to ensure that all of our members... Uh, whether part of the DeafBlind community or with uh, multiple you know, physical mobility, dexterity impairments, in addition to blindness, that everyone is able to access the technologies necessary for accessible voting. And was that was that Deanne? Yes.
18: Yeah, this is Deanne. Uh, there's two issues I want to bring up that came up just in that listening to that one. We also did, uh, have had the, the experience of hearing from our members that have dual sensory impairments um, that voting in the polling isn't necessarily accessible in it. There are many factors involved that make it inaccessible, such as the noise level of a, in, a, in a polling place, um, not only but people, the knowing how to interact with the person with dual sensory. Um, the other thing that it ran into was when we were talking about to our Secretary of State's office and to the Indiana Election Commission about um, going forward with this, one of the things they said is, well, if we're going to make it accessible for the, just for the blind, what about other disabilities and how do we, how do we put a ceiling on that? And that required a lot of thought, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially since I come from the cross disability community, um, working mm-hmm. with independent living for over two decades now, going on three, uh, going on four decades actually. Um, how how do you narrow that scope and not infringe on some somebody out there not being able to vote? Um, and but yet we didn't want to open it clear up to the vote by mail population that just wanted to vote for the convenience of being able to vote mm. from home um, and that and so that, that is what led us to using the terminology print disabled because we could in, we could include people who had manual dexterity issues, learning disabilities might be able to read the not comprehend the print um, and, and, and so many other factors. We also realized is that the definition of being able to vote absentee, which is written in state constitution, you can be very creative and you can fit into that classification of people who could be eligible to vote absentee. But it wasn't creative. We couldn't be creative enough to make it accept- make the accessible um, absentee ballot fit in there. Without making it making some changes.
9: Thank you, Deanne. I want to bring and if Aaron I can just back. Jump
17: in real quick. Sure, we real quick, Karen. Disability is our it's a basis for ours too.
9: Yeah. So, Aaron, uh, hearing hearing this feedback and the importance for dual sensory folks with multiple disabilities, I mean, that makes the access work that that you all are doing and others in the field are doing just all that more important. Is this, is this what you hear on a regular basis from the community?
20: Yeah. I mean, it all falls into the same theme of that. We've gotten in some States, we've gotten part of the way there with ballot delivery, but, you know, as you mentioned earlier, if they have to convert it to a piece of paper, it's inherently inaccessible at that point for many, voters, it's also, there's also many voters who don't have, you know, many, many voters don't have printers, but many voters don't have computers. So how are we going to, you know, solve the absentee voting for for voters who do not have uh, computers or smartphones? Uh, and so really, it all comes back, and it really hinges on the, uh, the legal, uh, you know, issue with electronic returns. And you know that is because once we have electronic return, we can have a fully digital process that we can make available over telephones, um, you know, non non smartphones, uh, certainly smartphones, uh, note takers, uh, and other and other you know sort of broader range of devices. Once we have um, electronic return permittable. and so I, I want to talk a little bit about that, particularly the security. I I have a very um, heavy security background. And the 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 debate has always been it's either it's either or, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but
20: I want to I want to share with you guys a little bit. There there is a, a technology out there that has largely been in the academic literature uh, for about twenty years. You know, it's not new um, as we've as we've mentioned, but it hasn't been used um, in products. It hasn't been used in solutions that have been sold. And it's a technology, it's an approach called end-to-end verifiability. And what it is, uh, simply simply put, is it's a way of protecting the ballot from the voter's device through the transmission and tabulation process. It protects the privacy, it protects the independency, and it allows for verification of, of the parts of that process that the security advocates uh, will claim are the insecure parts, right? So when you're facing pushback in, in legislation and folks are saying it's insecure or it can't be secure, uh, there's a couple of things they're they're gonna point to and the end-to-end verifiable technology and approach actually mitigates those. Um, and so I, w- I would just encourage, you, I don't wanna take up too much time, um, but if you're gonna have that conversation um, and debate around security, um, you know i would push that you know end-to-end verifiable approach is both accessible and secure we're not having to sacrifice the way we've traditionally thought about sacrificing one or the other um, we we really can do this uh, if we uh, if we kind of embrace that and that isn't necessarily embracing one vendor there into end verifiability is not something unique to one uh, one vendor it's actually a it's a it's a it's a, it's a more of a scientific protocol you have to follow, but you can implement it a bunch of different ways. So you're not limiting yourself to to one uh, vendor um, in doing that. However, that is the approach we are taking. uh, And that is something that we are rolling out this year um, as a part of our solution.
9: So Aaron, we are, we are reducing uh, technology as a barrier, right? As Doug said, it's not rocket science. We're increasing education both of election workers as well as voters of what what exists, what's out there, what the possibilities are to increase access um, in accessible voting and voter turnout. You just uh, highlighted how we no longer have to choose between security and accessibility. Um, there are solutions that we can have both. Um, the other item that I know some of our affiliates and our members have heard about is the cost of these systems. Um, so I'll just ask you to to reiterate what enhanced voting is doing to also, you know, tear down that pillar of this is too expensive for us to implement for people with disabilities to vote.
20: Yeah. Yeah. So what I've noticed in, in, like I said, we've been doing this now for five years. What I've noticed is that there's a lack of transparency around pricing um, in this, in this space in particular. And in some cases that has led to um, prices that just are, are, are significantly high. Um, So we wanted to take an approach that, you know, where we could offer a, a transparent price that, you know, would sustain us as a company. Um, but would be low enough that even rural jurisdictions um, across America, or of course, large jurisdictions as well, you know, could afford it. Um, and so we are, are announcing a, a program where we're offering our entire solution. There's no, uh, we're not cutting, um, you know, any accessibility. We're not cutting any any features for voters. Uh, it's our entire solution uh, for, for $24.99 for up to 250 voters in the jurisdiction. And so that's you know roughly $10 uh, a voter. Um, we've seen cost, you know, 10 times that for small and medium jurisdictions um, across you know the US. So um you know that's that's what we're rolling out this month. Uh, again, we've we've built the system to this point uh, to where Jurisdictions, our implementation time is very limited. Uh, our feature set has now been, you know, pretty well proven that most jurisdictions in America can use our system without us having to do any custom work for them. Uh, so we're now able to basically price this as a as a traditional commercial offering, um, not as any sort of custom uh, developed offering. You know so that's what allows us to to put it out there as a fixed price uh and I hope just the the you know, transparency of that and the predictability of that you know will help jurisdictions that are that are on the fence uh to to be able to come around um so
9: that's great thank you and uh thank I you. apologize apologize to our listeners that we are uh, nearing the end here certainly I I could keep this conversation going all day I uh, love the work that our affiliates are doing, so that people with disabilities can exercise, you know, their rights um, within our democracy. But Aaron, if folks want to learn more about enhanced ballot and enhanced voting, um, how where should they go, or how can they get in contact?
20: Yeah. So, um, and I had mentioned, I wanted to mention this too. We also uh, extend the option to to use our training and demonstration system. So, for any of you that want to do that or just wanna reach out and talk to us, uh, we have accessibility at enhancedvoting.com. Again, that's accessibility at enhancedvoting.com. Feel free to reach out to us there, Uh, send us your name and and your local jurisdiction uh, so we can get you access to our training and demonstration system or if you wanna follow up with us, have any follow-up questions um, since I know we're about out of time, be happy to take those over email as well.
9: Great. Thank you so much. And for all of our voting advocates out there, but certainly on this panel, uh, Deanna Hart from ACB of Indiana, Karen Campbell from the Illinois Council of the Blind, and Ian Foley and Martin Kale from ACB of New York. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. And Doug Town from Access Ready, as well as Aaron Wilson from Enhance Voting. Uh, thank you for your support and the work you all are doing to make learning more accessible. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Clark. I, I also, just
19: want to I, I would, I would, Clark, I'd like to just say one quick thing. Sure. To the advocates out there, you've heard now that accessible technology is not rocket science anymore, that education, we know how to do that. And that the price now has come down to less than $2,500 for accessible remote voting uh, for a a county. So when they throw these things at you, now you've got weapons. You can say, come on, $2,500? Give me a break. They lose that much money in accounting every year in most counties. So just some food for thought for the advocates out there. (laughs)
9: Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who has joined us for this day two of our virtual legislative seminar. Um, Again, big thank you to our sponsors, the 71 individuals out there that are helping to sponsor this event, as well as our Beltway sponsors like Enhance Voting, Waymap. Vispero and the American Printing House for the Blind. We also have a presidential sponsor, and that's the Mobile Voting Project from Tusk Philanthropies. And for those attending the in-person leadership conference, there will be an opportunity to provide user testing, feedback, and participate in a mock election where you can vote for your favorite legislative imperative uh, with the Mobile Voting Project. Uh, Also, for those who are able, please join us on Friday, March 10th, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time in Washington, D.C., for our rally in front of the White House in the U.S. Treasury for accessible and inclusive currency it's been over 50 years, folks, and we need to finish the job. So let's tell Treasury to make our currency accessible now. And on currency and all of the other issues that we've discussed, again, thank you for attending and keep advocating.
2: Thank you all.